Good evening, everybody. This is Catherine Lambrecht, um, Chicago Foodways Roundtable, which is part of Culinary Historians of Chicago. Uh, welcome to this program on uh, the mysterious origins of deep dish pizza, something we've been waiting for since at least February, and in my case, and for some of you out there, for the last 12 years. But the day has finally come where we're going to learn all about deep dish pizza. So I'm going to turn this over to Peter Regas, whom we've all been waiting for this story for like forever. Forever. Thank you so much. Well, 12 years anyway. 12 years is long. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kathy. And uh, it's an honor to be here again for the second time. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be talking about the origin story of deep dish pizza in Chicago. Um, I'm not so much going to get into the science. I'm not going to get into uh, the business aspect of it. I'm mainly going to get it into how it started. And uh, it turns out when you start to look into this, uh, it, it turns into a bit of a, a controversial story. So it's not life or death, but uh, it is an interesting part of Chicago's history that hasn't been explored, I don't think, the way it should have been. So uh, the picture you see on the front screen right now is the first or the earliest photo of the pizzeria that became Pizzeria Uno. Uh, the picture is from March of 1945. And we strongly believe, uh, because the back of the photo said, that it was a press release for the new Broadway, the new play called Glass Menagerie. So it started here in Chicago and then went to Broadway in New York after it was in Chicago. And uh, the woman on the right is one of the actors there. And the woman on the left is a wife of an assistant stage manager. And the man in the middle is what this story is kind of going to centrally be about. Um, he's the central uh, figure in the history of deep dish pizza. Uh, and uh, he died very young. So he dies at 51 in 1954. Um, so when that happens, uh, sometimes the survivors get to write the history. And this is what turned into a case like that. So that's Rick Ricardo in the center. He came from Northern Italy. And the date on that photo is 1945. And it's in the kitchen of what later became Pizzeria Uno. At the time, it was called Pizzeria Ricardo. And uh, so let's get into it. Um, so once again, uh, deep dish pizza, fairly or unfairly, it's a part of Chicago's identity. If we're going to have a Super Bowl bet between the mayors of the city or the World Series, what's on the short list? Deep dish pizza, hot dogs too, Italian beef. But deep dish pizza is always on that. Uh, John Stewart was famous for or, or infamous for uh, doing an epic rant on uh, how deep dish pizza is not uh, real pizza, that it's a casserole. Uh, unfortunately, the pizza he showed was not a deep dish. It looked to be a stuffed pizza, which is slightly different, uh, but whatever. So anyway, it's incredibly um, uh, visible in the media. And it's, I, I think, even though Chicago is a thin crust town, mainly, uh, especially on the South side, uh, deep dish continues to hold some sort of attraction. I think the attraction is that it's so different than anything else that uh, people have a natural curiosity to what is different. And thin crust doesn't have that same sort of um, curiosity about it. And the other great thing to me about deep dish 
pizza, in fact, it's probably more interesting than the pizza, is the story behind the origin of how it came to be. And that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, so I'm going to go relatively quickly. You don't need to read anything on the screen if you don't want to. I'll stop and slow down for the really important parts. So just enjoy the pictures. And uh, this will be later uh, posted on, I uh, gather, the Facebook and on the web. So uh, if there's a picture that you want to go back and see, you'll have plenty of time to do that at your uh, the leisure. So uh, it actually turns out to be not only a big part of uh, Chicago's identity, uh, for some select companies in the niche, uh, it's extremely valuable. Uh, this story just broke within the last month and uh, $700 million, even though you're cutting it various ways, is still a big, a lot of money. And uh, on, the, uh, on the right are the um, four uh, deep dish pizza providers that have multiple locations. Um, Uno Pizzeria and Grill is the, um, is the parent company of the two um, pizzerias here in Chicago named Pizzeria Uno and Pizzeria Due. Um, so it's fairly widespread, uh, not completely all over the country, but um, it has spread outside of Chicago and even in some select the countries it's has spread outside the United States. Um, so just a little background how I got intrigued by this story. Um, in 2009, the Tribune did this article that's on the left. It was in the um, main paper and in the red eyes where I saw it, uh, written by James Janiga. And it was an interesting story and I, uh, he hit all my buttons. So he talked about how he visited the cultural historian of Chicago named Tim Samuelson and how Tim was uh, building an historic case to make it a landmark of uh, Chicago. And, uh, but what Tim couldn't find is he couldn't find the paperwork that nailed down really who started it, who's responsible for the recipe. A um, lot of um, family stories and stuff like that, but as you can well imagine, uh, with something like this uh, relatively small back in the 40s, these things weren't necessarily written down as to who did what and who said what. So I read that article in 2009, and I said to myself, I've got to talk to this guy, Tim. Uh, I'm not a historian, I'm not a writer, but I was interested enough in the pizza story that uh, I knew I just, I, I knew I had to talk to him because it could have been my type of story. And so Long story short, we ended up talking for a couple of hours, and uh, I started slowly at first, and I learned how to do genealogy and stuff like that. And within a few months, I'd say, I started finding things that I thought were fairly significant. And uh, once that ball got rolling, uh, I couldn't kind of stop. And that was 12 years ago now. Uh, but after 10 years, uh, we got to bring up Rick Ricardo's only daughter, Jill Ricarder, and we took her out for deep dish the pizza at Uno's. And that's Jill Ricardo in back and Tim Samuelson in the foreground. And uh, so it just sort of all came full, full circle. I gave her um, a presentation on the research that I did to that point. And um, yeah, so there we go. Um, so one of the things before we get into the um, family, the history was to sort of have to sort of define a little bit, at least, what deep dish 
pizza is and how it's different from other types of pizza. So on the right there is a deep dish slice from Paisano's. And on the left is a classic bakery bread in Chicago that would be called pizza bread. Um, at the time it was taken, so that photo was taken in 1977 in the old Pompeii Bakery. And, uh, it, you know, this happens a bit in pizza where you start getting definitions and then you start crossing over and we start sort of getting confused as to what category things belong into and how you define pizza, how do you define deep dish pizza as opposed to Sicilian pizza. They're both in a pan, but one is square, the other one's round, so big deal. So basically, long story short, we're going to define deep dish pizza as saying it's cooked in a round pan. Sauce is on top of the cheese, which is on top of the crust. And particularly important is a high fat uh, content in the dough and some sort of thickness to the dough. Now, the classic air is to say that deep dish pizza is very thick dough. It's really not, um, but um, it is definitely thicker than a New York slice. So uh, typically, I measured uh, my Lumalnati's that I got the other day in the middle of it, not on the edge, but in the middle of it, from the bottom of the crust to the top of the sauce, it was one inch. And on the edge, on that raised lip, it was about a little bit over an inch and a quarter. So just to give you a rough performance, um, you're gonna be seeing a lot of photographs in for, you're gonna be seeing mainly guy's hands in it. And at least from my index finger, the width of it is five eighths of an inch. So it's a little bit of a good standards to uh, gauge in these old photos how thick things are and how thin they are. And uh, so there we go. So Pizzeria Uno started at 29 East Ohio, which is on the near the north side of Chicago. Uh, and this is just uh, three photos that just show the history of it from the 1912 to 2020. And it was originally, um, supposedly the family story is that Nathan Mears bought, built and bought the home for his daughter and her new husband, Jonathan Slade. So it's actually called the Jonathan Slade home. The photo was taken in the 1912. Um, obviously, Chicago has changed a lot since then. Uh, in the middle photograph, it's one of those rare photos that we actually see the exterior of what Pizzeria Uno looked like about eight years after it first opened. Um, at the time, uh, one of the weird things about this story is that the name of the pizzeria changes a lot, and, and it not only changes a lot, but it can be different names at different locations. So if you see it in the phone book, it can be different than you see it in an ad or whatever. We should probably just call it Pizzeria Uno since that's what it's called now. And it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference what it was called back then. But basically, it was called the very, very beginning in December of 1943. It was called, quote, The Pizzeria. And then in the telephone book, at least, it was called Pizzeria Ricardo when they started, looks to be trying to cross market it with Ricardo's popularity. So I should back up a little bit and say that at this particular time in the mid 40s, Rick Ricardo was a very famous restaurateur in Chicago. He what he had a restaurant on Rush Street that was a well-known, fashionable uh, spot to go to. So if you're an out-of-town Hollywood actress, 
that's going to be on your short list. If you're a writer or an artist, definitely that would be on your short list. So, um, there, so anyway, so we'll get into Ricardo in a little bit. Um, so just to get uh, a background a little bit, um, uh, this is a uh, thing I love to do, uh, and that is to just graph out linkages between the different um, deep dish pizzerias. So at the very top, obviously, the first one to start it all was Pizzeria Uno. Uh, then they got so popular that they started Dewey within a block. And then what started to happen is you get cooks moving, you get sons starting new businesses, uh, but mainly it was the cooks from Uno and Dewey who started to branch off or get plucked off by other enterprising restaurant owners and went to work for them. Uh, so it would be interesting how many people in the audience remember some of these places. So uh, Uno and Dewey are still around, of course. Gino's Pizza Ria that I have up there was on Rush Street. It was on 932 North Rush Street. That is no longer there anymore. Uh, Gino's East is still on Superior. And uh, Lumanati's, of course, is all over the place. Paisano's uh, came out from the son of uh, one of the managers at Uno's. And the rest of them are a little bit, I would say, a little bit more obscure. Uh, everyone sort of knows by the, or I shouldn't say everyone, but it's not uncommon for people to know who Bert Katz was. Uh, the story is that he started Inferno in 63 and then Gulliver's and then he kept moving on and he went to Pequod's and then eventually opens up Starback, which is then changed over to Bert's place. Uh, somewhat of that pizza, I've had it a few years ago. Um, you would definitely call that pan pizza. Uh, that one that sort of straddles the case of, is it really deep dish? Does it have the fat content that the classic, the deep dish would have? It doesn't really matter too, too much. Uh, but um, just to put that note out there. And then some very obscure ones that don't get a lot of play anymore, but were there definitely in the 60s, was La Piazza in Piper's Alley that was there from 66 to 72, and that, that eventually became Brothers 2. Um, those are a little bit of my current the passions now to find the history of those two. Uh, subsequently to doing this, uh, I remembered, and pe people out in the audience are going to look at this and say, oh, where's Louisa's in Crestwood? <laughs> where's Helen DeLisi's on uh, the Western Street? Well, the honest answer is I plain forgot them, which is shame on me, but they should be on there. So Louisa's on Crestwood um, was started in 1981, I believe, and Delizzi's is started in 1977, I believe. Uh, Louisa's is still in business, as best I know, and Delizzi's is, I believe, no longer in the business anymore. Um, so this is the, uh, bear with me one second, I'm going to take this off. Uh, this is the sort of three sources that when we talk about the um, the propagation of this origin story of Patria Uno, these are the three main characters and almost they're the only uh, the characters who'd be talking to, to the press or authors in a book, but mainly it was to the press. So Rick Ricardo Sr., Rudy Malnati Sr., who was the manager at Patria Uno, and Ike Sewell, who was the, who was, uh, 
It's a little bit hard to say, but it, it, he was indirectly the partner of Rick, Ricardo. Uh, I like to put these things in order so you can see a different pattern here. Uh, Rick R Ricardo only talked twice to the press specifically about the pizzeria. And even when he did talk to the press about it, they were a little bit elliptical, not really sure exactly what he's saying, but uh, uh, he did talk to the press and you just have to find the articles. Uh, uh, interesting that December the 19th, article was right after it opened within days. Um, and uh, unfortunately, given Ricardo, he was, uh, he died at 51 years old. And so he dies in October of the 1954. And um, um, after that, no one really was in a place to tell his story particularly. Uh, the longtime manager at Pizzeria Una was Rudy Malnati Singer. Uh, he did talk to the press in the 50s, or at least I think it was him, because sometimes you're not really sure who's talking to the press, but it's likely that he talked to a 1954 article, and then he was in a very obscure magazine called Main The Liner, and then he talked a couple times more, but altogether, not that much. He dies in the 1974, and uh, so the man on the right is the one who really is, I'm going to concentrate on for the rest of the pre pre presentation as to uh, the man who propagated this famous story of how the pizzeria started. And I went back and I tried pretty hard to get everyone, every time he talked to the press. So he retires from a distilling company, he worked for Fleischmann's. He was the, um, the time he retired, he was the head of the Midwestern Bureau for, for the Fleischmann's. So he retires on April 1st of 1966. And after that date, uh, within days, it looks like he was working with a, a press um, agency and he had a press release all to, ready to go to tell his story of how it started. And uh, he talked one time before that, but really was quiet. So it's interesting. The claim was that he was Ricardo's partner since basically the summer or spring of 1943. But you never, ever, ever saw him in the press associated with anything to do with Uno or Dewey at all, until basically he retires. There's only one spot where he actually opened his mouth uh, before he did retire. But when he did talk, look at all the articles he got into. And uh, I went through every one of those articles and I traced his story. And some things he said, I'm basically gonna come to the conclusion, never happened. Um, I think things he said, uh, not all things, but uh, a lot of the key things he said about how the pizzeria started uh, almost certainly were not true, but we'll get to that. Um, so one of the things that happened was when Sewell was, so Sewell dies in uh, 1990 and uh, Rick Ricardo was married twice. And when uh, these stories got going, they first got going, basically really got going in the late 70s, uh, early 80s. Rick Ricardo's ex-wife was still out there. She was living in Lake Forest, I believe, at the time. And whatever struck her about this, you know, she was getting up in ears too. I think the story is she actually called Chicago Magazine after they did a 1998 profile on pizzas and put in a little blurb about the origin story for Pizzeria Uno. And she talked to, I think, one of the authors of the piece, who was named Jeff 
Ruby and gave a much, much different spin on, I shouldn't say spin, gave her side since she was actually there in the 40s. So she's married in 1940 to Rick Ricardo. And the story and the fact was that uh, Pizzeria Uno opens up in December of 1943. So she was right there in the middle of it. Um, she's a great, uh, she would have been a great person to talk to to get everything that she knew about the origin story. And uh, you can see the quote right here. She says, Ike Sewell didn't know beans about deep dish pizza. And then there is essentially a background quote. Alan, which is her, um, she got uh, married again. Alan argues that Sewell wasn't present when her husband hatched his deep dish idea in 1943. Ricardo shared his plans with her and Sewell didn't enter the scene until a year after she and Ricardo launched Uno. And here's the final quote. I think Sewell was a crook, she concludes. So pretty strong allegations there, calling someone who's now dead a crook. Uh, that's interesting. And um, But the real whopper is when I read this, uh, I didn't read it at the time. I read it in a book in, in, a book in uh, the 2000s, was her saying that Sewell was not involved uh, how did she put it? He wasn't present when her husband hatched his deep dish idea and only entered the scene a year after Ricardo launched Uno. So that would have been, I mean, if you take it strictly by what she says, if they launched it in December of 43, uh, he only becomes some sort of partner in December of 44. Is that the contention? So I, it's one of those quotes that you just would love for her to explicate more about what she's really saying and if she had any proof or any d d documentation. Uh, so well, when I was getting involved in this story, um, I was probably talking to Tim Samuelson every other week or so, I would say. And one week, it would have been probably right within the first year, I believe it was, I'm pretty sure. He sent me an email or he called me or something. He said, uh, he's approached by a documentarian who's going to be doing, trying to do a documentary on Rick Ricardo. Wow, great. <laughs> Let's combine notes. This is fa fantastic. And in fact, it was because he had one of the rare opportunities. He actually interviewed uh, Rick Ricardo's ex-wife, Jill Ricardo. We'll just call her from now. He interviewed her at length on videotape, of all things, and spoke extensively about the relationship and the formation and the origin of Pizzeria Uno. <laughs> so this is like a dream, right? So it's like a perfect thing that you're going to be able to go back in time because at that point, I should say, um, 2009, she, I think she dies in the early 2000s. So, you know, unless there was something written down or in this case on tape, I'm at a loss to really know, understand where she's coming from. So, Fortunately enough, uh, I'm not going to be able to be showing the video because that's with the documentarian who wants to break the exclusive when he shows it on TV, which is great. Uh, but I do have the text and I did review the video and the text and it's exactly the same. So here's the nutshell of the whole thing, the really interesting part of it, um, and that I can verify with documentation. So just as some background, they had their daughter in December of 1942. On her birth certificate, on the daughter's the birth certificate, they're sending back the birth certificate to 29 East Ohio Street. So we know with almost 100% certainty, they were living at 29 East Ohio Street at the end of 1942. 
And so we're going to get involved. In so here's the quote from the uh, interview. We moved into the building and considerably remodeled it. And we heard downstairs, which had been a bar and sort of a saloon, it had been closed permanently because there had been a murder there. And as soon as we get through all the, as soon as we get all through remodeling and doing it up, we heard they were going to get a license again. So we decided that this would, we decided we had to stop them from opening it. We decided we had to stop them from opening down there because of the murder that had been there because we lived above. So Ricardo decided to open a pizzeria, which no one had ever heard of before. And then when we got it open, when we got it all opened, um, we found out there could, we couldn't get any liquor. We thought we could get the liquor from Ricardo's restaurant, which was ours through the guy who sold us the liquor, but there was, there was the war was on and we could only get what you could get. So Rick decided he would have Ike Sewell as a partner because he was our liquor salesman. And Ike Sewell came up with the idea that he couldn't do that because he was in the liquor business. So he recommended his wife. And we took his wife as a partner just in order to get enough liquor to be able to run the pizzeria. And here's the final quote. It's 100% Ricardo. We only had Ike because he was in the liquor business and we needed the liquor. It's that simple. So that goes a long way to explicating what where she's coming from, why they needed Sewell as the partnership, and definitely saying that when they open, here's the key thing, when they opened the pizzeria, Sewell was not either a direct partner or indirect partner. That's her claim. So um, we're going to go back to the um, stories, the competing stories here. And so Sewell had claimed that he had been working with Ricardo, that they had got the lease on that tavern the basement tavern in June 17th of 1943. That's when they started to occupy it and started to paint the walls and do stuff in there. Um, so that directly is contradicted by what Jill Ricardo said. Um, Sewell also had another claim. He said uh, he, it was Sewell himself who initiated the contact with Ricardo, that it was Sewell who broached it with Ricardo, that Sewell wanted to open up a Mexican restaurant at that same spot, and that he wanted Ricardo as a partner. So it's Sewell initiating the um, uh, the partnership. Um, and, uh, and Sewell also says it was Sewell who found that basement tavern uh, at 29 East Ohio. Now, Back up a little bit. Re remember, the Ricardos are already living above that tavern, uh, just to put that in context. But Sewell is claiming he was the one who found it and told Ricardo about it, apparently. Uh, and then Sewell says something that is really interesting. He says, they were going to open up the tavern, Mexican, the restaurant at the basement in 29 East Ohio, but after they had the lease and after they were committed to a lease for a given the period, they decided it probably would be a good idea to taste what Mexican food actually tasted like. And so Ike from, he was from Texas, by the way, um, he was already familiar with um, um, Mexican food, but Ricardo being Northern Italian, not so much. So the story was that Ricardo's bartender at Ricardo's restaurant heard the conversation and said, 
I'll cook you something. Supposedly he did, and it made Rick Ricardo sick, and so sick, he was violently sick, and so sick he got angry, and he took a wad of cash, according to Sewell now, from the cash, the register, and stormed off. Sewell couldn't find him. He later learns that he had been in Italy. Now, this is the summer of 43 now, very important, that Ricardo got mad and stormed off and went to Italy for two or three months. Now, you should be saying in the back of your mind, isn't there a war going on? How would he get to Italy? That's kind of weird, isn't it? Uh, and, you know, how, was he a soldier? Was he a spy? How did he get in the country of Italy? Why would he go there if he's just mad? These are just logical things to ask that um, it's surprising in, in the past didn't get asked quite as much, or maybe people didn't want to really ask those hard questions. Uh, so says a bunch of other stuff. He said that uh, the only other pizza that he could find in Chicago was on Taylor Street on the south side, but they tried to go there and the man there didn't want to serve him because he only served it for parties or special occasions or on the weekends or something like that. Also very interesting. And uh, so had another story that the pizzeria initially was not popular at all, but a soldier came back from Italy and uh, had their pizza and raved about it in the newspaper. So he wrote it up a review and he said it's the best pizza he's ever had and he's been all over the country of Italy. Uh, interesting story again. Uh, and uh, so anyway, so uh, then we compare that to what Jill has for her claims here. So Jill says, no, her family was living at 29 East Ohio Street in the 1943. We know she was there from the very beginning because her of what we had said about the birth certificate being delivered to that same spot. So they're right above the basement tavern, which by the way, right then would have been abandoned. Um, she also says the partnership was, rich, was Rick's initiative, not Sewell's. She says that um, Sewell's wife became a partner after one year. She says that Ike's wife was Rick's partner. There was liquor rationing in the 1943. She says that Ike's a crook, blah, blah, blah. And she says the, uh, the reason why they went to get the tavern, obviously, is because there had been a murder and that's what had shut down the tavern beforehand. And that at the opening, and here's really the only really, really important thing of the whole thing, when they opened up the pizzeria in December of 1943, Rick was the sole partner. And so, to cut this short, these are my ju ju judgments after looking at every primary source I could find. And I'm basically co coming to the conclusion that Jill's claims were basically on target. She was saying things that were accurate. And Sewell, with that story that he gave, was saying things that were not accurate. In fact, in some regards, he had to know that they were not accurate. Um, why he did that is an interesting thing. It, it just, in this story, there's not a lot of people who are good or bad. Uh, there are people who are definitely exaggerating a lot more and are saying things that are not true, but sometimes they're saying things for a complicated uh, reason. So we can get into that a little bit. But the big whopper is that there's no way, no way that Rick Ricardo is going to Italy in the summer of 1943 or in the fall of 1943 or in the summer of 1942. There was active submarine warfare 
There was wartime restrictions on going to any of the enemy countries, even Europe you couldn't go to. This is why at the end of the war, there was such a queue to go in the in the tourism the bureau that started back going again they started to go to the nordic the countries in 1946 so even in 45 they couldn't do it it's just mind-boggling how he would have said that and expected people to say oh really he went to italy <laughs> a wartime combatant in in basically i guess july of 43 august of 43 september of 43 uh, we invaded Sicily just as a backdrop in early July of 43. So enormously unlikely he did that. And Rick Ricardo was one of the most covered people in Chicago. If he had a cold, it would be in Cops Column. If he traveled to Mexico, it was in Cops Column. He went to Canada, it was in Cops Column. The fact that he we went to Italy and it would never make the papers in life or in death or after he died is just mind-boggling. So that didn't happen, and Sewell had to know that didn't happen, and that Sewell was exaggerating. Now, it doesn't mean that just because he's he's basically telling an untruth there that everything he says is untrue, but it certainly helped, it hurts Sewell's credibility greatly in that. And in fact, I'm basically saying that I agree with Jill's claim, the key claim that Rick Ricardo was the sole the partner when they opened in December of 1943. Um, and here are the documents that give me the confidence to say that. So the first one, the big one, is the liquor, the licenses that had to be taken out. So when Rick got his lease, the first lease that we see for the basement tavern that Rick Ricardo got was starting November 1st of 1943. Nothing at all involving January or June of 1943. Like Sewell said, it, it seems strange that even if it was in January that they would have had a lease, that they had a lease for like four months or something like that. It doesn't really make sense why they would do a short lease and then a longer the lease. So, um, but anyway, so this is the first liquor, the license, what was called at the time the pizzeria. And just the key things, uh, the two key things are the duration and the start of the lease, November 1st of 1940. 43 and extends the full year to October 31st or 1st of 1944. And then on the bottom, the key things it says, you're supposed to test, right? So the important thing, we want all the partners who's involved in the business as an ownership, you got to be on the application because they have to test if you're a criminal, if you're a politician, whatever. Ricardo says and signs it, any partners, name of partner, if any, none. So that to me is very strong. Even if we just had this, we have this and Jill Ricardo's testimony. Uh, she didn't know that this still existed. Um, I had to search for this long and hard and it wasn't um, exactly an obvious thing that would have existed, but it exactly matches what she said. At the time Rick Ricardo opened in December of 1943, he had no partners. Um, the other small card on the right, the yellowish card, is the state liquor index card. So uh, Illinois is a dual um, regulated uh, state. So you first have to get your the, the, the license for the local authority, that would be Chicago, and they really do the deep involved in investigation, and then you go to the state. So that card is really there for just confirmation of what we already knew, but basically saying Rick Ricardo is the only owner and um, he's a new owner, it's saying like that. And it gives a specific date when the license was eventually issued. 
and it's December 8th of 1943. So the next thing I found uh, was really a happy day when I eventually found this. This is the original partnership, well, it's a copy of the original partnership agreement between Rick Ricardo and Florence Eichsuhl's wife. <laughs> now, she wrote her name, interesting enough, she didn't say her name was Florence Sewell. She said her name was her maiden name, Florence Davis. And this gets into why Ike Sewell was saying, I want my I want my wife on the partnership agreement and eventually on the liquor, the license. I can't be on the liquor license. This is a regulatory issue. Um, it's not just a regulatory issue. It's a uh, perception issue that Sewell was dealing with. So back at the time that they, they had the uh, 1934 act after prohibition was lifted they didn't want they did not want vertical integration between the distiller or the manufacturer and the distributor and the retailer so they wanted separate groups to be in so they didn't want crossover so why a guy like Sewell or related party of Sewell's can't be on the license is because um Sewell is works for as an executive at manufacturing the company. And here he's putting his wife on a tavern, which is a retailer. So, I mean, it's definitely against the regulations. If they would have known about who Florence Davis really was, even though she is the wife, indirectly, it still doesn't matter according to the rules. Uh, you can't have a related party on the liquor, the license. and uh, so it's pretty obvious what they were thinking at the time because there's no financial reason to put your maiden name on a, a license or a partnership agreement. So she's making sure everything's consistent. So she wants the license to be the same as the partnership agreement. So she signs her maiden name, Florence Davis. There's no doubt about what's going on there. So anyway, there's just a couple of things that are really significant about the partnership agreement. I mean, it's fantastic to get this after so long. Uh, but the date, the date is probably the most important thing about the partnership agreement when they signed that agreement. And it's February 15th of 1944. Now, you know, so they opened in early December of 1943. And why would they wait so long to sign a partnership agreement? It's a little strange if it's just two, two months. Now, Sewell's granted his original story, his story was that they leased out 29 East Ohio, the tavern, in June of 1943. So that's really strange. If that was the case, why would they have an agreement in February of 44? That makes no sense. Or at least you can make it work, but it's one of those things that you have to make excuses for to say, well, maybe they weren't sure they were going to do things and they weren't sure about the terms of it. Maybe they wanted to wait to buy the building. You know, all these things could have kind of sort of happened. But it's very odd to commit to a lease and then sign the partnership agreement several months after the fact. Um, and you could say, well, maybe there was an, a, a, an initial agreement and this is a superseding agreement. But nowhere in, the pop, in, in this agreement, it says nothing about an early agreement. So for all intents and purposes, this was the only one, period. So very strange for if the, if it was the case that Sewell had been working all those months with Ricardo uh, before they opened up in December. Um, basically, it's 
pretty simple. They're 50-50 partners. They contribute 50% of the capital each way. They get 50% of the profits. Uh, they talk about the total amount invested at this point was $6,000. So each is out $3,000. Uh, they talk, interesting enough, about uh, profit sharing with the manager. So if you go back down to uh, section 12 and it says, neither partner shall be under the duty to work or put in time at the partnership place of business. And it is understood that the duties of the partner shall be supervisory only. So basically, they had to give money at times, maybe, and uh, that's pretty much it. Um, they probably had to sign some things, but other than that, they had no obligation to work at all. So this is pretty much a hands-off uh, business deal they're working, and that's why they're going to compensate, presumably, the manager in the way that they are. Uh, Section 11 is going to become very important because Rick dies early. And it's the critical clause in the partnership as to where the business goes if one of the partner dies. And basically, it says, we're going to pay off your original investment of $3,000. We're going to pay off all the accruals for that year. And that's it. The, the other, the partner gets the entire the business closed. That's end of story right there. And so that's pretty tough if in this case what had happened is the value of the business appreciates greatly. So the goodwill of that business has been skyrocketing since 1943, but in nowhere is that reflected in the partnership agreement and it was never changed. Um, anyway, so this was found in a long sort of drawn out uh, a search in the Cook County Court Archives. I had to go through several uh, the case files to find it over uh, several months, some of which uh, were heartbreaking that I thought I wasn't going to find it, and then I finally found it. So anyway, uh, let's go on. So the two articles that Rick was a source while he was alive, and he was clearly talking to the writer, is first the December 19th, 1943. So right after it opens, I, we don't know specifically exactly when it opened, but he, the, the um, reporter Elizabeth Rannells is re reporting on this December the 19th, 1943. So I would gather it's probably within 10 or 14 days since the very first opening of it. Um, my guess is it's probably close to, to 10 days. We don't learn a ton about the origins of it, but what's sort of interesting is that we don't get things. I mean, so this is what Sewell had been saying before I gathered. He had just come back from Italy within the last months, and they'd been working together on the recipe for the pizza, or at least Sula has been sampling it. Notice Ricardo doesn't say anything about that in this thing. I mean, presumably, if you're going to war-torn Italy, you'd probably say, hey, I got this idea from Italy. I came back from it, and uh, this is why I'm going to start the new place. He says nothing about the place. In fact, yeah. Uh, so uh, there weren't a lot of interesting things. It does give a little bit... Um, there's a story that I think is credible that when, when they first opened in the early years, they would only have cheese and sauce. And if you had a sausage, the pizza, it only would be sauce and sausage. It would not be cheese, sauce, and sausage. Um, so that is sort of confirmed in this article a little bit, if you read it right. Um, and basically it does it's at least consistent with what Jill's story had been. And that is basically they were concerned about the status of the tavern and who would own it. Now you can say that a couple of ways. The way Jill said it is they were concerned 
kind of crazy, uh, violent people would be owning the tavern because there the, was a murder, and uh, maybe it's the same people who are responsible. Who knows? Uh, Ricardo's a little bit subtler in how he says it. He says it. Uh, he doesn't want people singing in the tavern. He wants it for conversationalists. So it's at least consistent. He's not exactly saying the same story, but at least it's a consistent story. Um, he does say a very interesting paragraph. He says, after a three-week intensive course in the art of preparing a pizza from the master himself, obviously referring to R Ricardo, Lado recently christened Ladina has been installed in the miniature kitchen. Here, blah, blah, blah. So that's interesting. So it's clearly saying Ricardo is the guy who's teaching him how to do the pizza. Anyone know anything about Ricardo? Um, he was a food lover. He was in the restaurant business. He was a cook. He was all these things. He worked as a seaman cook for many years. Uh, he loved all that stuff. So of course he would have been on it. There's nothing surprising about that at all, but it's good to see that in the black and white. The second article is in 19... 46, and that deals with much more than just the pizzeria, but there's a little bit of a blurb that unfortunately was a little bit garbled in the writing or the editing of it, but it seems to be the key quote is this, <clears throat> Ricardo then living above the place, presumably the pizzeria, bought it for a pizzeria restaurant so that, quote, no damn noisy tavern with a jukebox could take it, close quote. And that's the main quote of the whole thing. Again, it's consistent with, with Joe's story. It doesn't exactly say the same thing, but at least it's consistent um, with it. But again, it's Ricardo who's initiated in this story. He's the one that's buying it. He's presumably the one who's well aware that if he's living above this tavern that's now abandoned, but he thinks someone else is going to take it over, and he's concerned about that, so no damn jukeboxes in there he's going to be the one to initiate. There's nothing at all involving an outside partner, nothing involved a Mexican restaurant, any of that stuff. So um, I put some, uh, the notes here, uh, no Italian trip dimensioned in the summer of 43. Okay. So absolutely not. Ricardo gives the three-week course. Yep. No mention of the Mexican, the restaurant, um, the, the noisy tavern, the backs up her story too. It's always Rick's initiative to do the restaurant. He's not coming from someone else. Um, that's why it's highly unlikely that Sewell found the tavern that the Ricardos were living right above. That doesn't make any sense, or at least it could have happened, but uh, usually you don't find a tavern that uh, Sewell was living in the nearer side, but he wasn't close to that spot. And it's odd that someone would find the tavern when your partner is living right above that tavern. Um, and so there we go. Um, so that's Ricardo in the press and that's all we're going to get of Ricardo in the press, unfortunately on this particular subject. Uh, but Hey, um, obviously you can do the really simple route and hope for luck. And that is going to the telephone books and looking thoroughly through every telephone book from that period. So both the yellow, the pages and the white pages and go up and down go above, during, and after that time period and see if you can find something. And sure enough, we get lucky in this regard because um, the section in blue was the, the name of the tavern that was there before it was closed. And it was called various names, but basically it was called in the telephone book, 
Pelican Tap. It was sometimes called the Pelican, sometimes called the Pelican Club. But it was a tavern, and it was there from late 1939 to it closes, and I'm virtually sure about this, uh, the last time it closed was November of 1942. So November 1st of 1943, they shut the doors. And then shortly after that, the Ricardos move into the floor above it, but presumably never see it when the tavern is in operation. So um, the part in yellow is the part that Pizzeria Ricardo had. Um, so that's Pizza Ricardo in the book. Now, the really interesting thing is the part in orange, because we see nothing in the March yellow pages from 1943. No, the listing of Pizza Ricardo or anything about the Pelican Tap. Nothing in June, but we do see something in September of 1943 in the yellow the pages. And ordinarily, you know, what is duller than a telephone book? But in the context of the story, this is riveting. Because the only way that could have been put in, note it's a different phone number too. So it's not like it's a clerical error that they just simply forgot to take that out when they should have done. No, no, it's a different name that they put and it's a different telephone number. So I called the telephone company. I said, given this scenario, how would you work it now? How would you, you they said, if you're going to install a line, you have to physically be in that building at that time. So remember, if we go back and why this is significant, Sula is saying they have that tavern space in the basement as of June 17th, 1943. They're painting the walls. They're going to make it a Mexican restaurant. Then Ricardo gets sick, gets angry, and stomps off to Italy. Now, Maybe he stomped off to Berwyn or something like that, not to Italy. So forget the telling story. It's wrong. It's false. But maybe he's just exaggerating. So they really did have the, the lease at that time. Then how can you explain the Pelican Club in there in the book September of 1943 and not in there before that? Presumably, if they're going to be in the book afterwards, they would be in existence. Some probably in May, June, July, they would be in there. But Sula's saying they're in there, and they were. It was never the name that Sula would had would have been the would have been the last name. So he wasn't going to call the Mexican the restaurant the Pelican Tap. Anyway, what this means is that it's almost surely the case. Like once again, that Sula's story is just not not um, not uh, um, coming up true. Um, it's it's it, it, we're forced into a contradiction. Now you can sort of make it work. Maybe they were there in June, but by the time they were going to, you know, organize the telephone book, they were gone and Sewell was there. You can kind of make it, but it's really a strain to do that. And once again, we, we have multiple things that are like this. Uh, so it's one sort of very, very strong piece of evidence that the story that Sewell gave was wrong, that they didn't have the lease in June of 1943. And so why would he be lying about that? That's odd. Um, but anyway, there it is. Um, and so we're going to go back and see that tavern that was there from 39 to 42 called the Pelican Tap. Um, this is the first time this is sort of publicly disclosed, not that it's any huge thing, but it's sort of a huge thing. Uh, the Pelican was actually a tavern, but it was also a pizzeria. And, uh, we know that definitively because the ad on the left there called the Pelican was in a magazine. And that was put out in the fall of 1940. I forget the spe specific month. I think it was October 
of uh, the 1940. And um, also what's interesting, if you go for a liquor at the license with an extended hours um, application, you have to serve food and to when the cops or when the police came to investigate, if you actually serve food, they would sometimes attach with a pin the menu. And we're lucky enough to still have the application for the Pelican Tap in 1940 with the original menu there. And you can see on the far right, you can see pizza plain with Italian sausage and anchovies, smalls are 50 and a large is a dollar. So the Pelican, that was the actually first pizzeria at 29 East Ohio. So it's very odd because when Sewell is talking in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, he's saying, well, I think we're the first pizzeria in the United States that exclusively sold pizza as the sole group. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know what really that means is anything, but, but he never said anything about, he, he, he did say something about this um, uh, tavern. He called a poor man's pub, but he never said anything that it was pizzeria. So I'm not even sure if he knew. Um, it's not totally clear that it was a pizzeria for 1942. So it's possible that it was in the early years a pizzeria, and then for whatever reason, it changed uh, to simply selling sandwiches or something like that, whatever. Uh, but the interesting thing for our story is, what are the odds that Ricardo would be living above essentially an abandoned pizzeria and then come up with the idea independently to open up a pizzeria? It makes you think, are the two linked? Did the sub leaser of the tavern who was taking Ricardo into the tavern to show him um, if he wanted to rent it out, did he say, oh, by the way, Rick, I don't know if you knew this, but this was once they sold something strange called pizza. And did that trigger in his mind something? Uh, did Rick look in the kitchen, which in data he did, uh, being a chef himself, did he look in the kitchen and notice there were bake ovens there? Were the bake ovens still there? Probably they were there still. And the final interesting thing to speculate about, and of course, I don't really know exactly on the details because this is incredibly um, obscure stuff at this point, were did, did they still have, or did they have, what did they cook the pizzas in? Did they cook their pizzas in pans? And if that's the case, were the pans still there when Ricardo was taking over the tavern? And is that what partly was the inspiration to cook this deep dish pan or use essentially a deep dish pan to cook the pizza. Anyway, we don't know, but we know they had pizza there, which means we know they had to have it at one time an oven there, which means that if it was a gas oven, which is almost surely would have been, it was connected. And if you're abandoning a tavern, they essentially, I know a little bit more about the story, they uh, had to abandon the tavern and the creditors took over. So you shouldn't be taking stuff that's attached to the walls, which a gas oven should be attached. Uh, so it's likely they would still have had the oven there. And the last thing is, what about those pans? What, did they have pans? And um, they might have. They might have. Um, anyway, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, this could be a whole different talk because it's a... Um, it's a very uh, interesting crowd who was running that place. Um, let's just stop there. Uh, and why? We, so we're on the menus. We're going to talk about the Pizzeria Uno, the menus. So their menu came out for the very first time. So they opened up in December of 1943. 
And if you only have one dish that you're serving um, at the time, you don't really need a complicated menu. In fact, they didn't have a menu at all. But eventually, the first few years go around, they add salad, they get coffee, they want a dessert, so they get uh, spumoni in there eventually. So in the 40s, I think they end up with a salad, the pizza, and a dessert, and coffee. And I think, obviously, the beer and wine and stuff like that. But by 1947, Ricardo has passed away. Sewell is now through his wife, the sole owner, and uh, they decide to do a menu. And so this had been, I don't know why I care about this, but I was sort of curious about who did the design of the menu. And I actually found the guy's name and his family, and that's him on the left, Archie Schramm. Uh, he dies in 1965, but from, uh, I would say after the war to the mid sixties, he was very active in the Chicago the restaurant scene in terms of designing spaces, advertisement, menus, you name it, he did. He was a very creative person and um, sounds like he would have been an interesting guy to meet. Archie Schramm and the first menu, 1957. So we're going to get into the managers now. Uh, one of the controversies has been uh, who was there as the first manager? And uh, it has been going around specifically, I mean, I'll just say it, it would have been Paisano's Pizza has put um, a little blurb as to why Rudy Malnati Sr. was the first manager at Pizzeria Uno. And not only was the first manager, but had the pizzeria recipe. He was the guy who really sort of designed the pizza and all that, but surely was the first manager. That's assumed. And one of the main sources for that is the source. And uh, this has been going on for about a decade that they didn't. Uh, I, when I first started, my memory is that they said it was the Chicago Daily News, 1956, I believe it was. I want to say September. Um, it turns out it wasn't that. If you look into it, <laughs> and Tim and I spent some time on this, I said, Tim, Look at that symbol right at the end of that story. What's that? And he took one look at it and said, that's United Airlines. I know what that is. <laughs> and it was just a question to get the right one. And finally on eBay, I found the right one. And it was the October 1957 Mainliner United Airlines magazine, of all things, that had the blurb. And the blurb is, the key blurb is, quote, Rudy Malnati, who in 1943 established Pizzeria Uno on Chicago's near north side. So. It's saying he's there. And you see the quotes. It doesn't have a direct quote from Rudy, but clearly it's talking to Rudy. And the only person there who would have probably said that to, to the reporter, whoever did this thing, uh, would have been Rudy. So he said that. But this is the issue with secondary sources. So this was not done at the time he was there. Uh, so we really don't know. So that's why we have to go back to the primary sources, the sources that were there at the time that were recorded there at that time. So we're going to go back to the primary sources to see who is the manager at 29 East Ohio. Next slide. So here's the primary documents. And the main one I'm using is the liquor, the licenses. So when they first do the application, they usually always do who the manager is. And so I, you know, you can just see the way it works here. I did three different colors, blue, green, and yellow. And it's not complicated. There were three different managers. The first one was not Rudy. Malnati Sr. The first manager was Bartolomeu Fico, who was Rick Ricardo's cousin. And reason why we know that is his name is on the liquor, the license. 
Now, I think what was probably happening was this. Rick Ricardo and the Sewells were not actively involved in this tavern pizzeria. So they wanted someone to essentially have almost complete authority um, except for a few things, but basically could sign everything and they wouldn't need Ricardo. So he signs his cousin, the guy who presumably he trusts the most, and he's going to run it for him, basically. And he's going to get the prop profit sharing. And so he's on the license. That's the only way we know that he was actually involved. And he's only involved from 1943 to 1945. Uh, and then the guy who takes over has already been, he was actually already in that December of 1943 article, but he was described as Gino, the head waiter. Now it's Gino Volpe is the manager of the pizzeria at 29 East Ohio. And he's on the liquor, the license starting in November of 1945. And it's always good to have more than one source for a given fact. And indeed we have articles from that same time period um, not explicitly saying his last name, but saying, quote, Gino, the smiling, at the Latin host, uh, G uh, Gino, the jovial empresario. And we can go down and down to, he gets enough fame, presumably, so that he has a brand in and of himself, so that in the phone book, they have an ad started in 1948 saying, Gino's famous pizza. Now that's quite something. Uh, and that goes on for several years. And then all of a sudden, things stop. In 1951, June, there's a blurb in the Tribune, gossip, uh, the columnist, and it says, quote, Rudy Malnati, new manager at Pizzeria Ricardo. This is June 10th of 1951. That, that is the first time we ever heard of Rudy Malnati in any way senior working at 29 East Ohio in any capacity. Now, the story had always been he was not a bartender there at the pizzeria. He was a bartender for Ricardo's at Ricardo's restaurant. But the story had been then they pulled him from there and made him a manager when they opened up the pizzeria. Not so. What looks to have happened is he worked as a bartender at Ricardo's restaurant on Rush Street. And then uh, something happened to Gino. We don't know what happened to Gino. Uh, he eventually um, ends up and goes to Las Vegas, but it's one of those sudden things that you can see a guy with a brand name to some extent, just stopping with no explanation. And from then on, Gino Volpe's name does not cross publicly Ike Sewell's lips or Rudy Malnati's lips. He's not in the papers at all and given no credit whatsoever. So we don't know what happened, but obviously you can speculate that there had been some, possibly some falling out, possibly something happened that caused some catastrophic change in the relationship. Perhaps there was a loss of trust. I don't know. Um, but anyway, um, we have three of the managers. And so we can say now that there's no primary source evidence that Rudy Malnati Sr. was in any way working or certainly a manager for the pizzeria there. And we have very good evidence that the manager uh, in the mid to late 40s was a man named Gino Volpe Sr., as a matter of fact. And there he is in the center there. He was five foot two tall. And um, so I traced down the descendants. So Tommy Fico, the first, the manager, never had any kids. I don't think he was married even. Um, 
But Gina Volpe did get married and he did have kids. And I was able to find his descendants. And luckily enough, through just, you know, fate or, or luck, uh, they kept his photographs and he had photos of the pizzeria from the mid forties. So this is the first time that I'm aware of. I don't know if they've showed them from uh, their, the family side that these photos have ever been shown publicly. I mean, I've never seen a public photo from the forties. So I guess I said that Ricardo photo was the earliest photo. I'm not actually sure. So this photo, because he's working behind the bar, he doesn't look to be in a managerial capacity. It looks more to me like he's a bartender, but who knows? Uh, this could actually predate that Ricardo photo. I have no idea to tell. I don't know. Um, but there he is, five foot two tall, and just gives you a feel of what the pizzeria would have looked like. This is almost surely probably in the mid-40s. Um, interesting to see right there up, if you could see my cursor, the light fixture right here. That was actually described in the originally December uh, 1943 article that said they made wine bottles alight the fixture. And then if you lo look right at the top near the ceiling, you can see a pizza pan there as this sort of the base of the light, the fixture. Anyway, so that bar stand is still there. And the claim is that that was the original bar stand of the Pelican Club. Uh, so from now, um, I'm going to just breeze through a bunch of the Gino Volpe um, photos. And, um, you know, they're just a pleasure to see. One thing that is interesting is we're going to be able to see what the pizza looked like in the 1940s. And um, so I'm just going to page through these. I'm not going to talk a ton, but you can get a, a view of the vibe of the people and uh, what it looked like at Pizzeria Uno in 1945, six, circa. That's Gino, obviously, and on the sketch. So this is the 1949 Chicago by night. Uh, what would sometimes happen is that they would shoot the cover shot and then when they're shooting the cover shot, the professional photographer would go out, obviously, to shoot the cover shot, but he didn't know which particular photo would be the cover shot. So they have to take a bunch of photos and they would end up giving the family, and it's great for us, they gave the family a bunch of the extra photos uh, that they didn't publish. So that went out in November 18th of 1949. Gino Volpi, it says, uh, the major domo at Pizzeria number una. So you... Italian bakers in the audience, why they use the feminine form where they eventually went back to the masculine form of Uno. Um, you can tell me why they did that. I, I think pizzeria is a feminine noun though. So I have, I'm not really totally clear about that. But so that's the ad on the right and that's the cover. And now we're gonna see the rest of the photographs from that photo shoot in the fall of 1949. So that's the kitchen. That's Gino making a pizza for us. And that's the Blodgett oven on the extreme left. And if you notice, the sauce doesn't look to be on yet. And he's sprinkling some substance on top of it. It certainly looked to be something consistent like cheese. And what's interesting, it looks to be shredded cheese. It doesn't look to be a Romano hard cheese, although it's hard to tell admittedly, but usually you put the hard cheese on top of the sauce. So it's quite possible they were using shredded cheese instead of what they currently use now, 
sliced cheese, earth shattering, I know. Uh, the more important thing from us to look at is look at the, um, the depth or the shallowness of the pans that you can see on the shelves there and even the one he's holding in his uh, the left hand. Now, keep in mind, this man is five foot two and a half tall or so. So he's very small. And those pans look considerably shallower. I shouldn't say considerably. I would say significantly shallower than the current um, pans that they use now. So they use a two inch pan for a large now um, in terms of the depth. Uh, these don't look to be two-inch pans. Uh, so they've got the grippers. And notice on the gripper, which is those metal things that they're using to uh, grip the edge of the pan, that gripper, the tip of the bottom of it goes almost flush to the bottom of the pan, which is not the case now. So it's almost like that design of the original gripper never changed, but the pans changed. So if you see the pans now and the gripper, it goes probably about two-thirds of the way. Uh, but not certainly as far down as they do now. So anyway, it's a, a blodget oven. Uh, I don't know if they have the specific type, but certainly the one that's consistent with it would be a 982, which means you have a burner um, on the bottom, you have a bake oven in the middle, and then you have another bake oven on top, and then you have a set of two. So one is stacked on top of the other. So the one closest to, to the burner is going to be the hotter of the one, and the tradition, the way the deep dish people do is they rotate eventually from the bottom one to the top one uh, to prolong the heat and not burn the bottom. Uh, so more of Gino. Now that woman on his, would be his left, eventually becomes his wife. Uh, and I always forget her name. I just looked it up. I'll have to find it later. Anyway, they're taking a look at the pizza and look at the thickness of it and look at the shallowness of that dish in particular is the thing I want to concentrate your temperature. And also you can drill down if you want to, you can see that there's a matchbook on top of the ashtray. And yes, indeed, it does say reserve, but the matchbook says pizzeria uno. So one of the claims was, well, you know what? They only changed it from pizzeria Ricardo to pizzeria uno after Rick died. Not so. Thing to come out was um, there was plans to go to an additional pizzeria. So this is where it gets complicated. So on one setting, they could call it in the telephone directory, Pizzeria Ricardo. But for advertisement and on their signage, they could say Pizzeria Uno, or as that one ad said, Pizzeria Numero Una. Uh, so there was speculation or at least thoughts in their minds. Obviously, if you're gonna name something Uno, you want, or Una, you're gonna think, oh, we're gonna have another one, right? Uh, so, but they never followed through on um, before Rick died in October of uh, the 1954. And then shortly thereafter, Douay opens up in July of 1955. I believe it's July. It's definitely the 1955. Anyway, I still say that's a significantly shallower pan. And uh, we'll take a look at the edge cross. So that's a tough view to look at the edge of that slice. So I blow it up on the right and the main shot is on the left here. And we're gonna go through several of them, but you can get a picture of that particular, that slice that the man has in the foreground there. And you can see the edge of the, uh, the crust in, is still in the pan there. To me, it looks, uh, it definitely does not have the current edge crust that we know now. So on the end of the piece, they didn't raise up the lip. 
but that's not so much the significant part of it. It's more of how deep or how thick is that deep dish um, slice. And it, it's not thin crust. It's definitely not thin crust, but it doesn't look to me the same thickness of a deep dish currently served now, either in Nomadis or Unos or Dues or whatever, Paisanos. Um, they all differ a little bit, but as I say, the Malnati slice I have, and I've checked it pretty closely, it's about an inch right in the center. And on the lip, it's about an inch and a quarter. So if you look at their fingers, a man's finger, the width of it should be about five eighths of an inch. And so I think my finger could be about the width of that slice that man has there. But let's go on. So here's some fun clowning. And you see a slice, again, a fork near that slice and you see what looks to be the man folding up the slice and that's why they're, they're laughing a bit uh but i'll just pause here just so we can record uh, a little bit of that shot and move on so this is a particularly a good one of that slice so it really shows sort of the edge of that thing and uh i think if i put my finger down my finger would be wider or deeper than that slices. Now it looks to go up a little bit at the lip a little bit, but that main section does not look thick at all. Uh, go on. So this is a very intriguing one. So a couple of weeks ago, um, I was able to view Mark Malnati's photo co collection from his father's time at Pizzeria Uno, which would have been, so this gets a little bit thing. I should back up a little bit. Uh, Lou Malnati was born in Italy, came to the United States in the 30s, and then went back to Italy before the war, and then came back to Chicago, or came to Chicago early in 1946, and he would have been around 16 or so years old at the time. So he eventually makes his way behind the bar at Pizzeria Uno. But he would have been there. And I have, I talked to one of the bartenders from the late 40s uh, when I first started. And he said, absolutely, I worked with Lou in the late 40s. And Rudy was not there at the time. Rudy came afterwards. So best indication that I have, Lou was working as a bartender at Pizzeria Uno before his dad was the manager there. And uh, I can't be sure what he's putting in his mouth there for all i know it could be a pork chop or a peanut butter and jelly slice or something like that but given the context of where we found the photo and given the fact that he's wearing a shirt and a tie the way he would be as a bartender that certainly looks like a slice of pizza to me and if it's a slice of pizza that's pretty doggone thin now again there's variation. He could have preferred a thin crust and could have said to the cook, make it thin. I don't like it. You know, who knows, right? But it's another data point to say, was the pizza significantly thinner in the 40s and the early 50s? Um, it makes you think a lot, right? Okay. So that's Lou, probably around the late 40s, early 50s. Don't know exactly. So here's a photo where we do, uh, because it was actually published, I believe, in the Sun-Times in 1957. Um, I own the actual photo now. But again, this is Jerry Colonna. He was always involved in the pizza industry. He started clubs. not really sure what he was doing officially for them, but he had a song about uh, the pizza. And he seemingly made the press a lot with pizza and he certainly had that f f funny expression anyway 
again, look at the crust, look at the, the depth and the thickness of that pizza, which is what was deep dish pizza circa 1957, actually exactly in the year 1957. Again, the raised lip is not the same that we would expect now. It's not nearly the same height and it doesn't look the same way. It looks to me, now just my opinion here, that it was pushed against the wall, not raised against the wall in any degree. And um, again, I think if I put my finger down there, it would come pretty close to being five eighths of an inch. Um, but okay, let's go on again. This is Joey Brown. Again, I think this is 1957. Um, I'm gonna move my thing right here. Uh, again, look at his fingers in relationship to the crust. It looks pretty close to what Jerry Colonna's was, if not thinner. Uh, I think they did it around the same time. So I don't think it's the same, the pizza, but it's um, it's thin and, and it, it looks very crisp. And uh, just look at the fingers comparison to the uh, thickness of the pizza. And the reason why I keep emphasizing this is because for endless years we or decades, really, we've heard, oh, it started with, you know, Ike Sue and Ray Ricardo, they started to put gobs and cheese on this dough. And then they had the sauce on top of that. And then they cooked it for 30 or 40 minutes. And then they did that because they want the, the customers to wait and to drink more and all these other you know, stories that could have been true, but we really don't have any proof of that. Well, now we do have the photos a, a lot. I mean, it goes a long way. We don't know exactly if all the pizzas were that then, but it doesn't look like the deep dish that we see now to me. It looks like the sauce is on top. Yes. And invariably the dough may be very similar, but not the thickness is different to me. Um, and it's not just on the lip to me. It looks to be throughout the length of the pizza. It looks to be thinner. Not thin crust though, but thinner. So this is, uh, I think this is 1962, but I put circa just to cover my butt a little bit on it. Uh, this one's starting to look a little different to me. It looks to be a lot more sauce than the other two or three that we did see. And uh, I don't know if they're raising the lip, but I can see a little bit more of a lip, but definitely more sauce. And now I wouldn't be as confident that I could put my finger down there and it would be the size, it would be um, at a five ace or thinner. It may be a little thicker than five ace, but uh, anyway, a nice shot of Lou. Uh, at Pizzeria Dewey at that point. And again, they could have been different cook who cook at a different thickness. We don't know. But we do know who this cook was because I met her. This is Lucille Conwell at Dewey. And she said, she she showed this photo to me. And I said, can I take a picture? She said, sure. I said, when was this taken? She said, well, by the way my body looks, she said, as I was thin back then, she was pretty sure she said it was the early 60s. Now, other people in the audience who know hairstyles better than I do could identify when the hairstyles were popular. I know who that meant. So these are the people from the ice. I always get this confused. Either the ice followers or the ice capades. I think it's the capades. And that man and who, who is seated there is a relatively famous guy in those circles. And I've seen photos of him in the late 60s, early 70s. And I can't tell a difference. He looks exactly the same, but so it's hard to tell. But what is significant is look at the pizza now. To me, it's totally different. That could be a modern era 
Pizzeria Douay. I would go there today and have that and be delighted to eat that. It looks the same raised lip now. We see the sauce is huge thickness and we see a thick deep dish pizza at that point. And that's Lucille Conwell. And you don't probably know her by that name, but some pizza uh, geeks in the audience might know another name that she was known by. Her maiden name was Redmond. So she's Alice May Redmond's daughter. And for the people who don't know Alice May Redmond, she was supposed to be, <coughs> excuse me, one of the original cooks at Pizzeria Uno. It's a little bit complicated to figure out when she eventually came to Chicago. So she was born in Mississippi and made her way with one of the migrations in the 40s. We don't know exactly when, made her way to Chicago. Now, I talked to her daughter extensively. Um, I talked to her daughter on the phone and then I couldn't really understand her. I said, do you mind if I just come down to the South Side and talk to you in person? She said, sure. So I came down twice, and by the second time, we were talking very in detail and intensely about what happened when. And, and according to Lucille's story, her mother uh, came to Chicago in the, I get the dates exactly right. So she was trying to triangulate it with what grade she was in school. So she came and her daughter stayed back for at least a year or a year and a half. And Alice Mae Redmond worked in Chicago. Now, subsequent to my talking to Lucille, I talked to her probably in 2009 and 2010, and maybe the last time I talked to her was 2011. Unfortunately, she died in 2013. And so there are a ton of things that I found out later that I would have loved to have asked her if I was a sharper interviewer, I probably would have said, hey, are you sure about this or not? So there's a little bit more uncertainty about when her mother actually came. I know her family was here by 1940. 48 because they were in the phone book and Alice May Redman's husband was working for the steel company by that time period. But we went, so I found her husband's World War II draft card, which was 1945. And he was still in, near Greenville, Mississippi uh, as a farmer. Now, you know, anything can happen. She could have come up with a relative, but presumably if you're going to come up, you come up with your husband to a different city that you've never been to before. Uh, but who knows, right? So it's, uh, I, we, we have some tricks that we're going to try to get more detail on when exactly Alice May Redmond came here. But Lucille did say, so she's born in 34. She said her first child, uh, she went to work for Uno's after her first child and she, she could peg that to 1950. And actually there, there's some supporting evidence for that. So. Um, the significance of this is that Alice May Redmond's immediate family, her extended family, or people who married into that family spread the deep dish recipe around to Gino's on Rush, Gino's East, Lou Malnati's. Uh, they were Due, they were Uno, they were, we think strongly, it's not 100%, but at La Piazza, that's where they got their cook at Due from. Uh, and for all I know, there were other chefs or at, at other spots that they would have spread it to. Um, significantly, and this goes to sort of a revisionist history, the story had always been that Gino's East in 1966 takes Alice May Redmond. She was working, I'll just say it at the time, um, uh, she had started out at Uno's 
And then when Douay opened up, she went over to Douay. And we have pretty good information on that, that that did actually occur. So from 1955 to 1960, she's exclusively at Douay. Then what happened, and this is where the um, publicly known story is, I think, wrong, because this is a story that I got from her daughter. She worked in 1960 during the day at Douay, and then she would moonlight during the night at Geno's on Rush Street. That's what her daughter explicitly said. Is that you shared? Absolutely. And then what happened is then she moves. And so then uh, the people at Douay or Uno found out, probably Lou, and he confronted her. Seemingly, it sounds nice. He said, look, you got to choose one. You got to choose either you stay at Douay or you go there. But I don't want you at both spots at the same time, not unreasonably. And so she chose to leave and she went to Geno's on Rush Street from 1960, it would have been, to 1966. And I think it was the summer of 66, Geno's, he starts to put one ads in the paper. So who knows exactly the month. But she's supposedly, and I don't have any information that contradicts it, the founding pizza cook at Geno's East. Now, what's so interesting about Alice Mae Redmond is that and this was sort of the story, and from all that I can find out, it was kind of true. And this goes to her great credit. Wherever she went, the reputation of that restaurant and the food that they had seemingly followed her. So that when she goes to Dewey, there was a rumor, or the word on the street was that Dewey's better. Uh, when she goes to Jano's on Rush Street, and people don't really know that, or if they do, they remember it in the 80s, it was significantly different than the way it was in the 60s. It was highly regarded in the 60s as opposed to the 80s and the 90s where it was, let's be diplomatically, not nearly as highly rated. It went downhill fast. But it was, if not competitive, very much up there with Douay in terms of where you preferred to have your pizza. Uh, and she was there at the time. And then she goes to Geno's East. And what happens to Geno's East in the 70s? It gets award-winning accolades and people and all this other stuff. So it's, you know, who knows if it's just her, but certainly it's consistent with her being there. And um, I'll just close on the other intriguing thing that, so after I talked to Lucille for the first time, I said, okay, I brought you a pizza. So I brought her an Uno's uh, the first time I saw her, which she saw the pizza and she was excited about it, but she didn't like the pizza at all. She saw something's wrong with this. It's not good crust at all. Um, whatever. It's just a one-off. But the second time I said, okay, I'll bring you flour and cheese and sausage if you're going to do a pizza for me. She said, great. So we had a party and they made like six different uh, the pizzas. And it was just astonishing how fast they could just pump those things out. And that's a slice of it. So that's a slice that Lucille Conwell made in uh, probably 2010. Uh, and to me, it was lighter, significantly lighter. Now you can make all sorts of complaints about it saying it didn't ferment long enough. It's a different type because they would mix the dough and they would almost put the dough in the pan within an hour. And so it's not the same way to do it, but whatever they did, it, it was not nearly, nearly, I can't emphasize enough as heavy as that what's currently out there in the leading deep dish spots now. And then maybe some people don't like that. I sort of appreciate a lighter slice, uh, which is sort of contradictory for a deep dish, the pizza, but it seemingly to me had not as much fat in it. Of course, she did the entire thing 
by hand and I saw her do it. And uh, anyway, so the last story I'll end with is that, and this has been a story that has been out there and what Lucille said didn't contradict at all. In fact, she virtually said it's true that when Alice May Redmond came, she changed the Uno recipe for the crust. And her quote was, I don't have it on the slide, but I think almost exactly the quote was, she couldn't make that dough stretch. And that immediately in anyone who bakes for a living means that didn't have enough time to rest. And so the strands of gluten are in the mingled and you get the rubber band effect. You can't stretch it, it just goes right back on you. Well, you either give it some time to rest or you change the recipe. Now, she came from Greenville, Mississippi, and she was, according to her daughter, a short order cook taught by her grandmother, Sarah Morell. And that's her grandmother there. And the family recipe was for biscuits that she would make all the time. And that looks to be what Alice May changed in a big way. Now I asked specifically, was it, so another way to change the, um, to inhibitate, to um, um, change the amount of the gluten that's in the dough is to put a fat in it or an oil in it or butter in it. Uh, that reduces or retards the amount of formation of gluten. It makes allegedly the strand smaller and so you can stretch it far, far easier. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, her daughter said explicitly, she's the one who put the fat to the degree that was in the dough and she changed the original the recipe at that moment by putting either fat when there was no fat or she put more fat. Now there is a recipe that's floating out there that was attributable to Ricardo for the dough and he's got butter as the fat. It doesn't come out to be the same percentage that I think they currently use, but he was using a fat in 1945. So it's one of those things that I'm not clear in my mind who I believe at that point, whether she remembers well enough at that point. She definitely said, though, to me, it was her mother who put the fat, who put the oil. And at this point, it would have been olive oil in the dough and then was changed to 50-50, the mixture between olive oil and corn oil. But you can use butter, too. And um, that made her dough um, easier to work with, that she was more familiar with it. And but once again, it was coming from that background that she made biscuits with it. And that's that old thing that people say, or it's actually on the box for Janos East, that they use cream of tartar with it. And that's when you make biscuits, either use that or a similar type of product that has the same effect when you use biscuits. So there is some support out there that if you're putting that in your dough, <clears throat> uh, that's at least consistent with a biscuit recipe. Um, again, I just th think it's an interesting thing to get the stretch of um, families passing on the recipe and perhaps, and I underline perhaps, that was one of the key turning points in the development of deep dish the pizza to where it is today. Um, so in conclusion on this, um, you know, I, I still say Ricardo is a central figure in the origination of deep dish pizza. I believe it was his idea. I believe the primary sources 
bear that out. They're not 100%, but they're certainly, I would say, strongly, um, they imply strongly that it was Ricardo alone when he opened up the pizzeria in December of 1943. Sewell, through his wife, was only brought in because they didn't have the alcohol at that time because there was wartime rationing. Sewell worked for a distilling the company. The primary product was gin. Uh, they were voluntarily rationing that and they had to make it out to the end of the war. And so uh, these taverns could only get a certain share. And it was, it's a little unclear. It was, it, it was um, self-regulated. So each of the uh, distillery, the companies was doing the rationing by themselves. It wasn't coming for, from the government. Uh, but if you're producing gin, that's going to be a valuable um, the liquor to have because, of course, that's the basis for a martini. And at that time, that would have been a hugely um, popular drink. So it could really be a make or break thing. So there were a lot of people that were critical. Sewell was definitely critical because he cut the deal with, with Ricardo. If it hadn't been for Sewell and the relationship between Sewell and Ricardo, would there be a Patriot Uno now? Possibly not. Uh, but without Ricardo, there would be no one there in that apartment at that time to start that business. Without Ricardo, there would not be no one there who would put his name on the restaurant to be able to, to cross promote it at Ricardo's restaurant, which was usually the popular and say, hey, if it's crowded here, why not come to my pizzeria? That's Pizzeria Ricardo. And uh, so it was enormously helpful for, for them to have it at the time. And of course, I actually do think that he developed the recipe for the original the pizza. Now, did that change? Probably it did, uh, because they've had innumerable amounts of cooks, and they did not have a close eye on the cooks in terms of what they were doing. They did not follow. Um, uh, they did not measure. <laughs> they did it by touch back in the day. Um, so there. So it's uh, a lot of uh, the people helped, and uh, but I think the primary guy who started uh, Deep Dish Pizza was Rick Ricardo. And with that, I'll will. Stop and uh, Kathy, you can come back on and uh, we can start the QA. I'm here. Um, in fact, on your last slide, or almost the last slide, we just start there because there were some specific questions. There? Um, well, Steve Delinsky kind of observed that that pizza slice looked like Louisa's. Yes, it does. And uh, John Ryan inquired if there was cornmeal. Uh, yeah, there's no, uh, so yeah, so the, the, back up a little bit. When I first called them, I did actually get to speak to Alice May Rodman. She was 90, what was she been? 92. Um, uh, and she was not in good health and I didn't want to push her. Uh, but I did ask her about the cornmeal and she said, cornmeal, like, what are you crazy? Uh, so there was no cornmeal at the time in Uno's or Jano's East or in any of them that they worked in, that that was just never occurred at that time. So I, I don't know what they've done after they left, but cornmeal was not part of the product. I do know a little bit about how that could have started, but uh, the rumor uh, that was around in the 70s that there was cornmeal, but the actual fact of them having it in the dough, all the cooks that I've talked to from their family said absolutely not, that had nothing to do with it. And when they made my um, pizza, it was, uh, you know, just the standards. It was uh, water, yeast, flour, salt, sugar, 
and uh, what am I missing, guys? And fat. So they put the fat in for mine. I think they used uh, vegetable oil for mine. But again, the thing that was so striking, and you know, it's just one batch of dough. So who, 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 who knows about it? But to me, it was significantly lighter. It was not as crumbly as the ones you go now when you have it. It was kind of bread-like, actually. And it was it was light. It was it, I could easily have had three or four the pieces of pizza there. It was not a big deal to have that. Uh, I enjoyed it, it but it was I, I don't know if it would be uh, as uh, popular. I, I should say that when um, I don't know if I said this, but when Alice May retired from Geno's East, she went back to her house and they started a business out of her house selling deep dish the pizzas for several years. So if you were clued in, you could go to 95th and Paxson and get the original or close to the original deep dish there in the early nineties. We no longer have that uh, unfortunately anymore, but there we are. Okay. uh, Thanks John. Steve Delinsky, if you wish you can unmute yourself because you have a rather detailed question. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So Peter, great job as always. Fascinating. Um, uh, Two questions. One is, um, do you think those original, so are you saying the original recipes were either tomato and cheese or tomato and sausage slash anchovy? Yeah. So they had three different types and this is partly working off some information that Mark Malnati was told by his father who would have been there, you know, he came in 46, who wasn't there at the very beginning, but he was certainly there in the mid to late forties. According to Lou Malnati, when he went there first, that they had cheese and sauce and dough, of course. And then if you had a sausage, the pizza, it would just be dough, sauce and sausage, no cheese, no mutz. They would have hard cheese, obviously, but not mutz. And the, Anchovies, I think, work the same way as sausage, but it's I'm not 100% on the anchovies. It's interesting, if you go back to the photograph here, those look to be, to me, anchovies on shredded cheese there. But I, it could be dough. It's hard to tell. But they do look like anchovies that she's starting to pour the sauce over. Um, but that's just me. Yep. And then the second question was, um, we saw all the, a picture with all those little shallow round pans yeah. which you don't really see anymore. Do you think, and I remember Mark Malnati said something to the effect of, there was a company called Tri-B and that worked with his grandfather, worked for, with his dad. But do you think those pans were just made available or they were lying around or they were abundant back then? Because we don't see them anymore. And yet, and you know the story about Detroit, those rectangular pans were abundant and that's what led to the, their style of pizza. Yeah, well, this, um, I, you know, I wish I had put this slide maybe in. Uh, so I've actually looked into the pans a little bit. And um, interesting story, not, but not surprisingly, on the near west side, it was not uncommon for housewives to cook their pizzas in a cake pan. And not only that, is I, I actually have a picture of a Greek baker in circa 1930, making his Easter bread in a deep dish pan. It looks exactly like the pan you see right on the slide there. And so, I mean, it would have been in the bakery world that you would have been baking bread. The Italians would have been doing the pizzas in that thing, not surprisingly at all. 
So what, I mean, it's not at all. It was also in the Sears catalog at the time. So um, if you go back to like a 1940 Sears catalog, um, you'll be able to see these cake tin pans, or I don't know if they're tin, but they're cake pans. Um, And so, uh, I mean, to me, it gets back to, well, I mean, I don't want to push the conversation in any one particular way, but it gets into the intrigue behind the Pelican Club or the Pelican Tap. And if they had those those cake pans, when Ricardo was going on thinking to himself, do I want to lease out this tavern that I'm living above and it's 1943, the fall or the summer, right? And he's going around and he maybe sees the oven and he sees pans. Now there's some reason for me to believe because I mean, to me at least, the pan in any regard, if you had a pan, specifically that one, which is not a really a, a big pan, it simplifies the baking of pizza, the process down greatly because then you're not we're working with a peel. If it doesn't come off right with a peel, you can take it off. You can pull that pan. All you need is a glove or a gripper or a towel just to yank that thing out of there. But it it gives you time. It gives you the ability to change or to fix the dough. There's all sorts of things that make it easier, which would be important if you're first going into the pizza business and you don't have an experienced cook, which I think the Pelican Tap, because I actually know the name of their cook that they had in the 1940 there, because it's on a police letter. <laughs> Who could believe that? But it was not an Italian name. It was a very common American name that it's hard to find, but it's not <laughs> It's not even close to any sort of Italian name. So there's no um, thinking that that cook would have been very experienced at all with making of the pizzas. So... To me, it's sort of, I mean, I don't want to be pejorative in saying it, but it's sort of a dumbed down way to cook a pizza. Now, it can be very good. There's no question about that. I love Sicilian um, pan. Um, the pizzas, arguably, I like it better than um, other forms. But um, it is easier because it gives you time and it gives you um, options, right? Um, so uh, I just think for the type of cooks that they would be bringing in, a pan makes total sense. You don't really have to train them nearly as hard. You don't have to have any experience, really. Uh, as that one cook was taught in three weeks, I'm surprised it took them that long, um, but whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the pans make a lot of sense. And um, I, I, I think it's more probable than not that the Pelican Tap probably did have some sort of pan. Now, whether it was the same pan, I don't know. But I do know this, that what I talked to one of the descendants of someone, this gets a little bit ahead of the story, that the Pelican, uh, one of the owners in the 1940 to 1941 period, said she came home with the recipe from pizza from a tavern restaurant in New York City. Yeah, so take that for what, what it's worth. Um, um, but I mean, it gets the ball rolling in terms of saying, I mean, to me, it's just so eerily um, coincidental that Ricardo would be living above. I mean, at this time in the 1940, how many pizzerias are in Chicago? Three, two, four. <laughs> and he's living above one. And the other thing I didn't say, but in one of the early um, reviews, in fact, it was the 1954 one that probably Rudy Malinani Sr. was the source for. He says something very intriguing. He says that the reason why Ricardo got into the pizzeria business is because his customers 
at Ricardo's restaurant were asking him why he didn't serve pizza. Now, put in the larger context in my other talks, it had been at this point, 1943, New York, the East Coast, they're loving pizzas. They're crossing over boundaries in terms of going to non-Italian communities at this point. Uh, they're starting to really, I mean, even in the, the mid to the, the late 30s, that crossover between um, alcohol and the pizza has already started and everyone, not everyone, but it's starting to become very popular to go into the alcohol business and to have a side product, you make pizzas, but you're going to the alcohol business and you're selling pizzas. And then when the pizzas become very popular, suddenly, hey, look, I'm really more in the pizza business at this point. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it would be very logical because especially because Ricardo's restaurant can't emphasize enough. It was the hub of the city for the people who were sort of in the, you know, I sort of hate to say it, but elite sorts of culture, um, avant-garde sort of cultures. People who would be coming from the East Coast definitely would think, oh, where should I go? Go to Ricardo's. Now it's too packed. Go to the pizzeria instead. But I mean, it would make sense that they would have asked them because they would be coming from a city that had it fairly commonly in Chicago, not so much. And here's Rick. He's Italian, but he's Northern Italian. So it's different. Uh, but yeah, so it's that makes sense that someone they would have been asking Rick at that time, why don't you serve pizza? And maybe that's stuck in the back of his head. I'm just thinking at the same time, what are the odds that he could have that, had that in the back of his head? And he's walking around in a tavern restaurant who had been serving pizzas two years before here in Chicago. I mean, that's I don't think the two are. Um, independent. I think they're related. I think it's entirely likely that Rick got part of the idea, maybe not the whole idea, but it probably helped a lot that he saw a bake oven in there. And I believe there was a bake oven in there. And he probably was told at some point that it was used to make a pizza in there. Um, it was fairly close to Ricardo's, the restaurant, but it wouldn't seem the type that Ricardo would go there as a tavern. Don't forget, he 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 lived there just after they closed it for the final time in November of 1942. Ricardo probably moves in end of November, sometime in December of 42. So he had no experience from the owners of that uh, the tavern. He would only have heard the rumors that someone got killed, but they weren't really killed. They were run over two times by, by a car in uh, 1941. And then the police were on a chase and they pulled their license because they were they were told that they were said to be um, serving after hours. Um, I don't know if that was used as an excuse or whatever, but um, yeah, it was an interesting place with a lot of people with very questionable backgrounds. Not everyone, uh, but the people who didn't have the questionable backgrounds typically were fronts for the people who did have uh, uh, the backgrounds that they were wanting to hide. So. Uh, a very interesting side of Chicago. I should say um, a funny story about R Ricardo. I just found this out within the last six months. Um, so Ricardo had the rush treat, the restaurant, right? Um, he would have had to had a license. So he opens up probably in 35. And so every year, every year he's got to have two renewals on the license. If, nothing changes. So that's his cash cow. That's his important restaurant. The pizzerias at this point is just purely 
I don't know if it's a toy or something, but it's an afterthought. It's not the big deal that, that it be, became, obviously. He would have had no idea that it would become a big deal. But Ricardo's restaurant, that was the major operation. That was the money the maker. And it's interesting that Sewell knew that too, because he was watching how much booze they sold there. So Sewell was a crafty guy. He knew where to look. Uh, so two, two things. One is, how much risk was Ricardo taking by taking Florence Davis? Because it was clearly against the rules to do that. So it wasn't a big deal. I mean, so it's interesting to think about it from both sides. Ike Sewell is the head of that office. Probably he takes over as head probably in 42 or 43. Interesting that he would have done that because maybe that gave him some more freedom, more confidence to go, oh, I want to go on a deal. Even though I shouldn't be doing this, I'm going to go and become a shadow owner of a tavern because I can see who's making money and I want to become partners with them. So he has the confidence to do that because he's the head of the office now. Um, that's one thing. But if his employer were to find out that he's doing this, how would they take that? And what risk is he taking in doing that for a corporate risk, not from the city of Chicago, but as a corporation to say, oh, we've got this senior executive who's not just doing his job during the day, but he's he's moonlighting with a liquor license, which could cause us problems. I don't, normally that doesn't go down that well. Now, maybe he had such an intimate tie with the owners of the, group that he was with that he could get a buy with that same situation with ricardo how much risk was ricardo taking to going in with florence davis and saying oh yeah i want to do this and i'm going to be taking and if someone finds out that that actually he is related to she is related to ike so she's his wife how much risk is ricardo putting not the the license at the pizzeria but the main the license at the restaurant at Rush Street. Now, at this point, it's a moot point because we have no record that anyone called them on that. And Ricardo went on from 1944. He signed the first the license with Florence in November of 44, and he dies in October of 54. So all those years, they were doing something that technically and really they shouldn't have been doing. And I've talked to the liquor commission about it. And uh, I said, okay, what would happen now if someone does the exact same thing? And, you know, do you get a straight answer? Not really. But the answer that I got was, well, we would ask them to choose one, right? You, you go with your day job or you go as an owner, but you can't do both, right? So you're going to have to, it, it didn't sound really punitive at all. Now, I don't know how much I believe that, but um, certainly there is on the books if they want to push it, they can take away the licenses if you have a problem with a different spot and, you know, you've got to disclose that. So, um, and then the other thing I wanted to say that gave oh, Cardo yeah. perhaps a different, uh, perhaps some more confidence is that he gets the license approved by the captain of his district in the Chicago Police Department. Guess who Ricardo goes on to, to a Canadian hunting trip the month before? The exact same captain in the police department that signed the liquor, the, the, the license. So the month before he goes to Canada on this extensive hunting trip, the month later, same guy who he goes on to with, he's signing the liquor, the license. Now, sharp move by Ricardo to do that if he's doing that to get on the side of um, the guy who's um, controlling part of his uh, the destiny. But uh, 
interesting story about how things work. As always. And we have some more questions. So if you don't mind, I'll interrupt you. Yes, please do, because I talked too long, probably. That's true, but it's all interesting. I heard someone groaning back there. I think that was you. No, it's full of detail. No, no, can't complain. So when comparing the depth of what some of the oldest photos look like, would you say Paisano's deep dish is the closest looking to it? And which Penny Pollock said, I think not. Paisano's deep dish, deep dish crust is not terribly different from its thin crust. So you're the arbitrator in this. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that, Penny. Um, so there's the Paisano's one. So I, my understanding was that the Paisano's thin crust has the sauce below the cheese. So that's just a, um, a not too serious thing, but I do prefer the sauce on top. Um, so I had a discussion yesterday, I think it was yesterday with Rudy Jr., Rudy Malnati Jr. And I said virtually the same thing. I said, Rudy, the photos that I see, your thin crust looks very close to what the deep dish looked like back in the 40s, if you have the sauce on top. Because the lip isn't that big on it too. And um, yeah, so it does look pretty close, I'd say. Uh, I haven't seen a thin crust Paisano's in, in a while, but um, the way I thought about it is, so I had a um, Malnati's thin and a th- and just the regular, the deep dish. And I thought what I was seeing at a deep dish in the forties looked to be right in the middle-ish sort of, maybe even a little bit thinner than the one in the middle. Now, other one, other folks who are in the business disagree with me. Uh, and say it's really only the lip that was raised or not raised that really you're 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 seeing. It's not the body of it. It's basically the same sort of the density. But uh, I mean, the Bazanos one did look on the thin side that you see in front of you there. If I put my finger across that, I think it's a little thicker, but it's not much thicker. I don't think it's. I mean, as I say, the Malnati's uh, deep dish was almost exactly an inch. So that's considerably more um but yeah so good point um so i think what we're saying is that we're looking for uh, a new product that we can bring online that's basically a thin crust deep dish thin crust with the sauce on top that's the one i would love to see uh made with a little bit less fat maybe Okay, uh, there was an observation. I think Gino's on Rush, the bottom of the crust, always had cornmeal in the 60s, which Kelly also had the same observation. Oh, wait, maybe it was another person, sorry. But in any case, cornmeal. So they, so just, just so I'm understanding the question, they would have it on the dish so that the dough did not stick to the dish, but not in the dough? Very likely. Um, you know, it might take him a moment to, but I think that's what they were thinking because that's how I've seen it as well or interpreted it at. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've, of course they do that with all sorts of, um, pizzas on appeal. Uh, I haven't seen that done on a deep dish pan, but, uh, I mean, I, so the story that I got is that uh, people who know the industry better than I do out there. And there are some on this call I know. I uh, know the name Tom Lehman, who is not alive anymore, but he used to be uh, the technical director, I think his title was, for the American Baking Institute that was in Manhattan, Kansas. 
But before it was in Manhattan, Kansas in the 60s, and I think in the early 70s, in the mid 70s, it was in downtown or it was in Chicago. And for parties, Tom told me they would bring um, Gino's East deep dish. And Tom got curious enough about it that he wanted to reverse engineer the Gino's East deep dish. And I think, I don't know this for a fact, but given the context of that, what Tom said, he may have been the starter of it's in the crust has, or the dough has cornmeal in it. Um, he clearly was confident that they did. Now, whether they had cornmeal in the dough that he was identifying or whether they had it on the pan that made it not stick, but not actually directly in the dough. It's interesting that the, um, and the Redmond family still had a bottle of this, but they had eggshell food coloring that they would put in the dough and it would come out to be a yellow. Now, would that hide the fact that cornmeal is on the pan? I don't know. I've never understood why they put a coloring in those doughs, but I know several have done it. And I know that Gino's East almost certainly does. And I was um, told that directly that they do do that. Uh, Scott's Pizza Tours inquired, any idea what tomatoes any of them were using back in the 1940s? Uh, Yes, maybe. Let me, um, can we go to another one? I'll check my other computer. It's probably on a spreadsheet, Scott. But uh, feel free. Let me just look. Okay. Uh, Kelly inquired, do you know when Alice May Redmond arrived to Chicago? I wish I did exactly to the very month, but I don't. Uh, I know it's probably sometime, you know, the daughter said, if I got to her timeline, I think the daughter implied it would be 42 to 43. But as I said, her husband was still working there in 45 in Greenville, Mississippi. So why would she come without her husband? I, I mean, I know the story had been she came without the children and Sarah took care of the children for at least a year. I know that was told to me. I remember that very distinctly. Unfortunately, I think she did say that she brought her husband too, but I did see at the time I didn't have the draft card. So I couldn't say, Hey, wait a minute. I have a draft card. Are you sure this happened? But she was pretty confident that it was in the mid forties. Um, she said she didn't immediately work. She said she worked for the uh, Campbell soup company and she worked for the uh, uh, telephone company and that uh, she eventually made her way to Ricardo's on a personal basis as his personal cook of all things. Um, and that then she was put into Uno's, but we know she was at Uno's because, so, I mean, I should say that uh, some famous names, you'll say, well, famous names, that's a joke, um, that names that are on deep dish articles that were there in the 70s and 80s, like Elnora Russell, that's Alice May's younger sister. So, you know, I mean, uh, and um, Aldina was married, uh, how, how did it work again? Her sister is married to, some, to Alice May Redmond's youngest brother. So, I mean, it's just that family tree with the Redmond family. You just see the linkages and you're like two steps away from that family everywhere, almost in that uh, the industry. Uh, to get back to the, uh, so yeah, I, I do wish I would find that out and I hope to someday. And as soon as I do, I will um, do, do another talk about it or something. Um, on the sauce for Scott, I was told 
this is not necessarily in the 40s. It's, I understand why Scott would know this, but they used, I have on my spreadsheet that uh, Lucille told me that they used 7-Eleven tomatoes crushed in the can. Whole tomato came in cans, raw, not cooked, a little bit of oregano. You know, uh, so 7-Eleven, but I don't think that was back then in the 40s. I don't know, Scott. I wish I did. I know she told me some of the original cheeses that they used. Um, they used Midwest cheese before they went to Anakini. Uh, and uh, interesting enough for your bakers out there, uh, they used Sarasota as the original flour for Uno's, uh, or sometimes they would use AP um, the Pillsbury. Uh, then they used uh, a Geno's on Superior, Geno's uh, East, they used uh, AP Pillsbury flour. Uh, uh, the pizza she cooked for me, interesting enough, was 20 minute cook time at 500 degrees, which is fairly modest. It's not that much of a long thing to do. Um, at Uno's in the 50s, the dough was made the day before and stored in the fridge in the basement. Uh, Okay, so I mean, I'll just read this on my other computer here. Uh, she said to me, and I wrote this down at the time, she was confident that when her mother first came to Uno's, there was no oil in the dough. I put an exclamation mark. She was also confident that it was her mother that added the oil. She also added the cream of tartar and a little bit of sugar, which came from her biscuit training with Sarah, her mother. She also said that Geno's and Superior, Geno's East, got a patent on the dough. Not true. Uh, that was, you can't do that. But she did get, I think they did officially buy the recipe from Alice May Redmond. And undoubtedly with that transaction, she signed a bunch of forms saying, you can't use this one anymore in a third party capacity. And uh, yeah, she claimed that's why Uno stopped using the cream of tartar. I doubt that part of it. That doesn't make sense to me. And then she talked to me about a lot of the intrigues at the different spots that she went to, that she was videotaped, that you know, people wanted to know exactly what they were doing and all the skullduggery that's going with that. Um, yeah, uh, uh, but the, I, I mean, I think the, the intriguing thing is not so much the thing I just said, but the fact of what oil they used. She said they started out at Uno's with 100% olive oil in the dough. She said it came from a gold and black can. Scott, if you're out there, um, what came in uh, a gold and a black can, can that was olive oil. I, Scott will, will know that. Uh, she said then sometime later, maybe in the 60s, combination of Dutch boy vegetable oil and olive oil uh, approximately sometime at 50-50, which is pretty much what they do now. As far as I know, they do use a 50-50 mix. Um, and uh, yeah, good stuff. Oh, um, Scott also asked, what's the earliest use of the term deep dish to describe pizza in Chicago? Oh, that's a total Scott question. So I looked that up. The first one that I could find was uh, 1971 in a, I think an Evanston, um, I think a Northwestern student paper. I think the term was out there in the 60s, but the more popular term that they would be using is pizza in a pan. That one, I, I think it's still up on Gulliver's. It's called pizza in a pan Gulliver's, which is you know, almost the same thing as pan the pizza. Why wouldn't you just say pan pizza? Of course it's in the pan. Um, 
then you get the, what is the distinction then between pan and deep dish? Again, that's the distinction then between Burt's and uh, Douay's. I, I mean, to me, I, I taste a difference and the difference is the amount of fat in the dough for one at Burt's or at uh, Pequod's, the way I remember it, it's been a while, but the way I remember it, it's a lighter dough. I don't get that weighed down feeling that you had uh, with an Uno or a Douay or even a loose or, or, or Paisano. So they go, I mean, to me, it's heavy on the oil um, as opposed to a more pan like the pizza that you would have. Um, it's lighter on the fats. Um, it's been speculated that the olive oil in the black and gold can might be Filippo Berrio. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah. Um, Who said that, Scott? No, that was uh, Jonathan Porter. Put one for Jonathan. Way to go. Way to go. Um, what? Okay, how thick were other pizzas at that time? What made these thick in comparison? Well, um, I didn't say this, but um, I, last trip before the uh, plague happened, uh, the uh, <laughs> I, uh, I did go to Joe's on Carmine Street. I did do <laughs> a geeky analysis to do this very comparison. So uh, their pizza was, I think, a quarter of an inch at the thickest point, I want to say. And this is their 21-inch large cheese pizza 21 inches and still if you were to compare that to a lose their 14 inch large cheese lose is about 50 percent more in weight um and loses an inch at the body and theirs is basically i think a quarter of an inch at the thickest and so it even goes finer than that now this gets into another point where you know it goes back to the sewell story that sewell said i mean the story with sewell was Sewell, to, to, to give him some of the, um, I don't want to be too hard on Sewell because he doesn't have any d d descendants. And uh, um, anyway, so, uh, but he did make it clear. He never really claimed, if you, if you read him closely, Sewell was never saying, oh, I was in the kitchen with my arms in the dough and I was coming up with formulas and all this stuff. No, he basically said he's Ricardo who was doing it. But Sewell was there to say, let's make it a meal, right? So let's make it heftier, thicker, whatever. And that's his claim. So these photographs, you know, support to some extent, but modestly so. I would not call these things like, let's make this a big meal. These things could have been. So I do have a story from one of my sources uh, who was there, uh, graduating from college, had his bachelor party at Uno's in like 1945 was a relatively was a relative of the Volpe family. And he said flat out, he would have routinely for a meal, a large cheese and sausage pizza at Uno's in the mid forties. Now, I don't know anyone who could have more than two or three slices of a large cheese and sausage. That is some heavy doing. And he was like, it was not that big. He was kind of proud of it, but that tells me that the dough is not just thinner, it's less dense. And the other interesting thing, I didn't put this in the d demonstration, but Ricardo does have a dough recipe from the 1945, uh, the period that he publicized. And I told this to some of the people in the business and they, it took them a nanosecond to start laughing and said, are you nuts? No one in the right mind, well, he, they didn't say that, but no one in the right mind who's in the business would give away a dough recipe. Why would he do that? Oh, this is the 40s and this is Ricardo. 
a didn't really I, I I could see Rick Ricardo just saying, I'm gonna give away the dough recipe that I liked. It may not be the one he's using then, but there you go. So I'll just say what the recipe is. It's short. Here's the dough Ricardo gave 1945. It's in the newspapers. If you have a service, just type in Ricardo Pizza. I made two it. cup, two cup scalded milk. Two teaspoons salt, fourth of a cup sugar, one third of a cup melted butter, fat, one cake compressed yeast, so you can use a package now, two cups sifted flour, one fourth of a cup lukewarm water, and here's the intriguing thing. Let rise to double bulk in pie pans. So he's mixing it, it rises, he compresses it, and then he's laying it out in a nine inch pie tin. And then he's letting it rise double in that pie tin. That to me is something they don't do now. Not that I'm aware of. They To me, they store the dough in the pans, they put the oil in there, and then when they're ready, they grab the pan, and then they immediately press out that dough, sauce it, or cheese it, sausage, sausage, and throw it in the oven, right? They don't let it rise after you've compressed and formed your essentially your, your your shell at that point. It's just boom, you're ready. So it's compressed. This Ricardo recipe, I mean, I don't know why that would be such a grand secret. I could easily see Ricardo saying, "Oh, let that rise a little bit." Well, now that's a little bit more. Scott would be from that. Obviously, that's a little bit more to me as being a little bit more Sicilian type of um, the pizza, a little bit more like the guy on the left here, who's by the name Alfonso um, uh, Divino uh, from the old Pompeii, the bakery. Uh, that's what he would have been doing. Uh, so it's a lighter dough. It's thicker, but it's less dense, right? So you have more air in it. Uh, so if that was the case of the pizzas that we saw in the late 40s, that's even lighter, which is consistent with a man being able to eat a large cheese and sausage, the pizza from Uno circa 1945. Um, yeah, I could see him do doing that at the time. And then maybe did Alice May Redmond come in after that and change things. Okay, so uh, was deep dish pizza something they ate in Italy or did Ricardo invent this? Right. So. Um, that's yes. So, it, <laughs> um, how to answer that? What did Ricardo actually do? He had the pan. We know that because we can see the pan. Uh, we know he put the sauce on top of the cheese, and we know he came with some dough formulation. So, if you're in Sicily at the turn of the century, it's entirely possible you're doing something relatively similar, not probably in a round pan, maybe a different fat, maybe not as much fat, but maybe it was similar. Now, that goes into who actually invented deep dish pizza and how much of an invention really was it. Um, surely the dough is distinctive with the amount of fat in it and the type of fat that they use. That there's no doubt. So that is the distinctive quality to that. Certainly there is a um, if you have enough uh, material on your pizza, it starts to take on a qualitative effect. I mean, if you lard down a pizza with a lot of cheese and sauce, 
that's unlike anything that I've had that's even a Sicilian was even that heavy with the sauce. Now, that's the closest analogy. And it was said so at the time to Sewell that, oh, really, all you brought back was a Sicilian type of pizza, thick crust uh, pizza. But it really wasn't really true. It is the closest thing to it. It's in a pan. And I don't know specifically what I would be shocked if Sicilian types did not have some sort of fat in that dough, not nearly to the extent that the deep dish did. Uh, but to me, the way I'm familiar with the Sicilian, that's typically uh, let it, it has a rise in the pan and then they cook it. Uh, that is different than every deep dish that I'm aware of now that 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 does it. Um, I'm not aware of the way that Burt's and Pequod's does it. Maybe they have a slightly different uh, procedure for it. But the ones that came out of the Unos and the Dues and the Genos, uh, they would press out that shell and immediately top it and that's it. So you're going to get a compressed, denser dough, right? So e even though it doesn't look as thick, you've got a tremendous amount of calories in that in that slice, which is why you get so full from it. So, uh, when you found you showed the uh, partnership agreement earlier on, there were yes. two reactions. Steve Delinsky said, "This is like finding the Ark of the Covenant in Chicago pizza terms." And then Daniel inquired, where was the partnership agreement found? That, that is not filed with the city or state. Yes, great questions. Um, so, yeah, so this is my type of stuff in right now. Uh, so what happened was, uh, yeah, how far back do we go with this? So I was born in Chicago. No, um, <laughs> I, um, I was sitting next to someone in the microphone room at UIC Circle or UIC Circle. I'm dating myself. Um, at the UIC Daily Library, and she said, "Oh, you really ought to go to the Cook County Archive. I'd never heard of it before." So within the week, I went there and I started to acquaint myself with probate filings. And I thought, "Oh yeah, Ricardo dies in '54. I better just check." I didn't really have any expectation I'd find anything in there really, except the file with maybe his estate or something like that. I could just learn something about him, who knows? But why not try, it's free, right? So it's like, um, you know. Uh, so I immediately found that and then in the probate file, I think it was, there was an immediately a lawsuit that was uh, the executors from Rick Ricardo's estate were suing Ike Sewell, Florence Sewell and Rudy Malnati Sr. And my eyes just lit up with that. I was like, great, what's in there? And so I looked at it and sure enough, eventually you see it and then they take it from probate court to civil court and you find that one and that's the one that really was good. So I have the, the filings and the briefs and you read the briefs and they're referring to the partnership agreement. Better, right? Fantastic. And then they actually say explicitly appendix, I think it was appendix A was the partnership agreement and the um, manager profit sharing agreement was Appendix B. Fantastic. It's in the same file, right? So I'm looking at the file. Nothing's there, right? So it's in the brief that they say they attach the appendixes to this brief. There's nothing attached to it. I still don't know why. No idea why. Subsequent to that and my depression over that, <laughs> um, I was in a conversation and I knew about this before. And someone said, hey, did you remember that there's an article in the Tribune that said two years after Rick died or thereabouts, I think it was in 57, um, essentially Jill Ricardo, the daughter of Rick Ricardo Sr., who I think is on this call, 
um, her representatives were countersuing Rick, or I don't know if it's countersuing, but suing Rick Ricardo Jr. as the executor of the Rick Ricardo Senior Estate, saying, we're looking for a full detail of all the transactions because we don't think, I, I didn't, these aren't the exact words, but we're looking, we, we don't think that you gave us the value that we should have been given. And there were paintings involved and all sorts of things involved in this. But the major thing that was involved in it was the accounting for the pizzeria and the value that they got for that. It was an out-of-court settlement with Sewell. Sewell gave them a little bit more money, but certainly nothing that it was valued at the time. He knew he had a great deal at that point. Um, so that was the one that I saw that. I said, full accounting in the Tribune article? My eyes just lit up again because I get another bite at the apple. So maybe in that filing, maybe that case file would have the original or a copy of the original partnership agreement. And it takes around two weeks from the wording, but I raced over to the archive. I said, I didn't want to talk to him at all. It made me nervous. Two weeks later, they're about, maybe it was a week and a half. I get back the file, pull everything out. Boom, there's the partnership agreement and the thing you see right in front of you. Uh, and I think on the back of the file, at least in the service they have now, they write down the date that it was actually withdrawn. And I don't think they had a date on that. So who knows if they had done that before. But it was pretty virgin territory there. I don't think people had looked at that file at all. But it's there. It's like four-page partnership agreement. And um, I was a happy camper back then. I mean, it didn't show that much that I didn't really already know because the the briefs in the civil court in the 1955 case had given me the main thing, which was the date that that was signed. That was the really the bombshell to me, that they signed it in February 15th of 1944. Who does that, right? If you have a partnership for several several months since the summer, you're going to have a partnership agreement the, the next year in the, you know, almost the springtime. I mean, that's very odd. And of course, it's not just odd. It's just not odd because the story was actually wrong. So, um, but it, um, yeah, it was a lot, I mean, it was a psychological sort of, um, hurl to get behind because once I found that, I found that, well, what's, what else is out there? And, uh, you start getting a little bolder and start going to the South side of Chicago and, uh, yeah, it was fun. Sorry. Penny Pollock uh, said she interviewed many, many pizza makers for Everybody Loves Pizza. Yeah. And she says regarding dough recipes, some folks keep it in a safety deposit box. And some said it's water, flour, yeast, olive oil and salt. No big deal. Well, yeah. So that's why the d deep dishes. Um, um, it's got more intrigue up and down. I mean, it really. Um, to the amount of chefs or the amount of cooks that have been taken. I mean, yeah, I mean, some of it, I, you know, it, it doesn't get so much in what's in the dough, but how you handle the dough. So, uh, I mean, I've seen things come out of Neapolitan ovens in Chicago by different guys who did the dough for that particular the weekend. And it was pretty noticeably different. And, and so, um, but deep dish, it doesn't, I, I don't know. I mean, it would be, yeah, it's, you know, how much that, uh, that what, what specifically, I mean, I was thinking in my mind, what specifically was Alice Mae Redmond doing that was so different that made her uh, doughs noticeably better and it didn't depend on where she went. Um, 
that people noticed a difference. Um, you know, was it the way she handled the dough? I mean, she, she would have pretty much had complete, within reason, complete autonomy in that kitchen at that time. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But I, I just know that, uh, that um, in some pizzas or doughs like a Neapolitan dough, pretty much it's standard practice to have just the basics. But in deep dish, you can do a lot of different things. There's a lot of different oils to put in butters and olive oils and vegetable oils and corn oils and, you know, all sorts of things that you could use for that. So, um, and how much sugar do you want to put in your dough? Um, you know, that would be unheard of for some types of dough, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so it's, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what more to say. It, 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 it's just, I, I think there's a more, um, there is more of an emphasis on the ingredients and there's definitely more secrecy with deep dough um, doughs that uh, I can remember some conversations. I, I'm pretty diplomatic. I would never ask someone explicitly for the dough, but even to have them look at a dough recipe gets them uneasy to say what the hydration ratio may be a little bit out there. Maybe the amount of fat is really extraordinary. They don't want to go there, the conversations that I've had. That's the one thing not to ask them in any way about the dough. You can talk about cheeses or the sauces, but um, about the dough. But not that many people do that much with the sauce anymore, which I think is probably a neglected art. Um, but uh, that's just a personal opinion. Right. And and it might not, and, and Jeffrey observed, he says, it might not have been just the dough recipe, but how it's baked, prepped what have you. I mean, there's, there's an art or a skill to everything, right? One would hope even um, Zoom pre presentations. <laughs> right. So uh, by the way, uh, I, I know uh, Penny has uh, some of her books left of people, I mean, available if you'd like, but I, I think maybe the question might have been directed to you as well. When can I buy your book? Wow. Uh, it, it, it's a more reasonable thing to ask when you're going to be able to read it on the web. That's the first step I need to go to because I've been making promises that I was going to fill out my website. And uh, I, 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 I have a little bit of an issue that I, um, I like to do the research. And then once I find the answer to the puzzle, then just do another one. Uh, that's not a good thing to do because that's a recipe for never doing the final step and actually um, writing about it. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm a little bit, I mean, the thing about the book is, yeah, I'm definitely going to do a book. The question is how to frame it and what's been done before. I don't want to necessarily do the same thing, not that they're bad in any way, obviously, but um I, I, I want to do a different sort of book. So I, my thing that I'm more interested in is not directly um, going with what type of doughs and the pizzas, but I, I'm interested in the business formation and social networks, which is not a marketable book. So it's something that may end up mostly on the web. And, and um, that's a very fragile place to keep things. Well, yeah. You know, so, websites right, so, disappear, you know, Right. So that's why you do, do do a book and that's why you do stick them in a hundred archives around the country. And, um, you know, I, but I mean, I, I'm perfectly um, happy to give everything away 
and it really comes down to sort of the format and the style of the book and who's the main character. By the way, uh, if Rudy Sr. wasn't super involved, what was his basis for being in the lawsuit after Ricardo's death? Oh, no. So, he's, yeah, so he was involved. And in fact, yeah, I should make that clear because uh, the Malnati's would be um, interested in this. Um, I, what I said was that Rudy Malnati Sr. was not, we, we have no primary source evidence other than Ike Sewell saying that and Rudy Sr. saying that allegedly that he was there. We have no other confirming evidence at all that he in any way worked at Pizzeria Uno in the 40s. And as a manager, we have not only he wasn't involved in it, we have other people involved in it every single year that he allegedly claimed he was the manager. So I'm pretty strong on that. I don't think he was the manager, period. And I don't think there's too much uncertainty about that. I mean, but he was the manager starting in June of 1951. Uh, and then from that period to his death, he was basically the heart and soul of Pizza Uno. So he was heavily involved in that. Sure. We have a final question, which I thought was a couple of minutes ago, but then other things popped in. But Scott's Pizza Tours inquires, do you bake deep dish pizza at home? And if so, which pizzeria is your biggest inspiration? I guess that's another way of saying, what's your favorite, huh? <laughs> Pretty crafty, Scott. Um, so my favorite deep dish is a, I, it's one of those that was cooked in a deep dish that I'm not so sure would be called deep dish under my rules I just talked about. But I'm still a Papa Dell's guy. Uh, that's from Champaign-Urbana. I went to school down there. I was raised on that uh, all four years I went there or five years I went there. Um, and there's something about that crust I like a lot. Now, the last time I had it, it wasn't quite the same that I remembered it, which is probably the case with everything. But to me, that's the type of pizza that I can have on a continuous basis because I can have it and I don't really regret it sometimes the way I do with a true Chicago deep dish. And it's a lighter dough and it's almost like a, a cake dough. So it's, it, it is a totally a different dough and really it probably should be the type to be classified as more of a pan, the pizza. In fact, it's actually called the one I do order. It's called a Sicilian pan. It's not called a deep dish. So, but, but you know, it, but it's, um, it does something very nice. And the thing that, and Scott would instantly know this, and I think he agrees with me on this, the one I really appreciate and the only thing I really miss, well, I shouldn't say that, uh, but the pizza I miss from New York City is Prince Street with just the cheese and the sauce. That to me is an outstanding pizza that is memorable and that you want to make, you want to go there for that. I don't like the other one with the pepperoni, but it's a Sicilian type of pan pizza. Um, the dough is risen, so, um, cheese, and then the best sort of, I think it's a cook sauce, but it's a really, really good sauce. And it just goes to show you how sort of neglected I think a sauce really is at that point. You can really tune that sauce in. You've got something really important. And it, it is a memorable, it's the one uh, a handful of uh, the pizzas with Titano's that, that I would go there and I would say, yeah, I really 
um, I would go to that spot again and again and again. And uh, they should come to Chicago. Why don't they come to Chicago, Scott? Make that well, I think we are come to an end. Although yeah. I have to tell you, when you when, we, when I talked to you last night about this program, you said, I might be four to five hours. Is that okay? Well, you hit the halfway point, which I think is plenty. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to save the chat so I'm going to be able to get Oh, no, out. save the chat and I'll save that for you. But uh, for those of you, because I know there was a lot of interaction on the chat, if you want to keep it for yourself, um, down below there's the three dots and then the file, hit one of those, I remember which, and you can save the chat. And I do save the public chat anyway, Peter, so you don't have to worry about that. I know. I'm but if people things. contact you directly, that's a whole other story. Well, thank you, everybody. This was great. And Peter already hinted that there might be another talk in the future with another direction, but I didn't say what it was. So you're not sure. on the hook yet. Uh, don't worry. It's the one thing that really inspires me to get going that uh, I need to talk again. So I need to actually do something. Okay, well, I'll help you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you all thank for you. showing up. It's been fun. It has definitely been fun. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good evening, everybody. This is Catherine Lambrecht, um, Chicago Foodways Roundtable, which is part of Culinary Historians of Chicago. Uh, welcome to this program on uh, the mysterious origins of deep dish pizza, something we've been waiting for since at least February, and in my case, and for some of you out there, for the last 12 years. But the day has finally come where we're going to learn all about deep dish pizza. Uh, I do have some upcoming programs, and since we have people still waving in, I will uh, tell you about them. We have a program next week, uh, May 19th, uh, Adrian Miller talking about African Americans and the United States of Barbecue. And on June 2nd, we're going to have a program on taco trucks with Robert Lemon. And June 16th, someone's in the kitchen with Dinah Shore, which when I was a little kid, we would call her dinosaur, but you know, I was a little kid and that's what we did. Um, and uh, in, in, in May and June, sorry, that's June. And in July 12th, we have a program on uh, the Jewish roots of Viennese cuisine. Um, that should be quite interesting. Uh, so I'm going to turn this over to Peter Regas, whom we've all been waiting for this story for like forever. Forever. Thank you so much. Well, 12 years anyway. 12 years is long. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kathy. And uh, it's an honor to be here again for the second time. Uh, 